in the matrix uh it is uh, tuesday july 30th 2019 2019 we're heading to that magic year 2020 um folks uh tonight we have a man we i thought we were going to have a trifecta tonight but if they have such a thing called a quadrifecta that's what we're going to have tonight uh ralph epperson hey ralph how you doing buddy oh good fine dave i'm right here all right good deal uh, is, that, so, is my voice loud enough? Can you hear? Is that okay? Oh yeah, yeah. You, Sounds you, good. Okay. You're doing just fine. And um, so tonight, what we're going to be doing, folks, uh, we we got a quadrifecta. We're going to do. Um, I think we're starting out with. Uh, uh, we never went to the moon, so that ought to get things going really good. Um, then we're going to talk about Darwin uh, admitted that uh, evolution was a fraud. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, how uh, one man, um, by destroying a barge, uh, I believe it was, and Ralph can, can straighten me out on that one, uh, brought it into the Vietnam War. And the fourth one, I forgot. Uh, God, God exists. God exists, yeah. How could I forget that? Shame on me. That's okay. That's okay. Okay, so um, Ralph... Uh, yeah, everything going good with you and everything? Uh, I'm ready. You're ready. Okay. Okay. So, folks, uh, we're going to proceed now, and I'm going to hand it on over to Ralph, and he's going to start with uh, uh, that we never went to the moon. So take okay. it away, Ralph. Thank you very much, David. It's always a pleasure to be here. I think we've got some things for you to really consider, and especially this one. The first thing I'm going to prove right now, finally, in about, I think it takes eight minutes or something, doesn't take very long, that we never went to the moon. Uh, now, I don't, I don't know, can they see this screen we have here, DVD? Yeah, never to... I see your cursor moving around. Uh-huh. Okay, so I'm going to click on play all videos. By the way, this is a video that's got, it's got um, a, a voice, so I'm not playing, I'm actually alive right now. That's my cursor, I'm circling it on the moon, and I just put it on pause. So I'm going to I'm going to overcome the the sound on this uh, thing myself personally, and so what you hear will be me live right now with the slides. So once in a while I'll say more than the slide, and if so I'll, I'll pause it. And sometimes there'll be a gap because I might have said more than I'm going to talk about because I'm doing this from memory. So let's get started with we never went to the moon. No man set foot on the moon. No man, no, not one ever. Still with all of the Apollo. And this is the proof. We're going to use a leaf blower, a common leaf blower, to show you we never went to the moon. This was produced just a couple of days ago, the 28th, well, a little month ago, June the 28th of 2019. And this is me, Ralph Epperson. I've long believed that we never went to the moon. I've been doing this since 1963. So, uh, But uh, suddenly one day I watched my neighbor 
his, his gardener with a leaf blower on the sidewalk in front of his house, and it was kicking up a bunch of leaves. There's a good example. Now, here's one man with this is a big gas-powered one, but look at what he's got. These leaves are as tall as he is, and there's thousands of leaves here. Yeah. So now yeah. you can really, so now the earth has one gravity. So if that can happen on one gravity, the moon has one sixth of the gravity, which means with that same leap floor, we're going to have a huge, okay, now this is a lunar lander landed on the moon. It's, this is the moon surface. I'm going to talk about the struts and the pads. That's the strut and that's the pad right there. These are four, these are about 10 feet underneath the lunar lander. But the struts and the pads are the important part. There's a pad, one of those struts has this pad. Notice it's covered with gold foil, and there's not a, well, we'll cover that later. Now notice this, this is the lunar lander, this is the module, and this is the in equipment in this part of the, uh, of the uh, module, this part here, and it's of course above the struts, there's one, one on the back there, two and three and four. And here we see the astronaut coming down. By the way, notice he's three feet off the ground. And this is called the descent engine right there. That's the, the I guess, the, the funnel, the upside down funnel. So this is intended to slow it down as it lands. And it's got 10,000 pounds of thrust, NASA admits. That's a very powerful engine. So it's intended to slow it down as it lands. because it has to go all the way down. Because say they cut it off here, it could fall. They don't know. And if it did, it could damage this or bend them or who knows what. Now, this is a, a piece of, uh, 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 this is a, a apparently a wall hanging of the Apollo 11 moon landing. I'm going to pause it for a minute. It's called a paper mural. It's available through Amazon.com. And here's the uh, lunar lander. And there's the flame shooting out. And I gather that it's already been here and it's moving this way. And you'll notice this is a crater that it kicked free. Because this is a this is a powerful ten thousand pound engine, but it, notice that it hasn't yet affected this part down here, which doesn't make sense, because this this would have to blow this away as well, but it didn't do it. This looks like it's maybe 25, 30 feet above the uh, above the surface, but you can see this is the way what it would look like coming down with this huge engine, ten thousand pounds, to slow it down, and it's moving on the surface of the moon. They can make it move forward, backwards, wherever, sideways, wherever it is. Okay, now we go back to the motion. So it's called the descent engine burning the yellow flame. There it is right there. And it's apparently equal to this whole thing here. It's, uh, that's 20 feet or 15. This is, you know, 10 feet, 12, whatever it is. So he created, I believe it looks like it did this or it's going there. And there's also a crater. Well, it's going to, if this has not been opened up, first of all, he doesn't want to land on that because he can't because it wouldn't be level. So he's going to maybe land here, but when he does, he's going to kick up a dust, and I'll show you that in a minute. This should, this thing should be a leaf blower. It's certainly capable of blowing away debris. This thing is a powerful leaf blower on the Earth, on the moon, even with one-sixth gravity. So let's talk about how can this thing... Now, we're going to look at pictures of the lunar landers and craters underneath it. I've got eight of them, I think to show you the damage that it did to Blue Way here. Look at once again, here's that same picture. Can you see any crater underneath here? Any evidence any of this dirt has been blown away? How about under this picture? Is there any, there's the, the engine. Can you see any evidence? There's another one. Any evidence of the dust and debris being blown away? Mm -hmm. 
No. There's no. another example. There it is back there. Any evidence that there's any debris blown away? How about this picture? Any evidence there's a crater here? I understand here's another picture of it. This might be a later lander, but there, because there's a little different funnel, but there's that same one again, or maybe one of the early ones. There's no, here's another picture of it. Not one evidence of uh, debris blown away. There's been an engine, a rocket engine flowing it down. So there are eight pictures of the lunar landers and not one evidence of a crater. Not, not one, no, no craters, not one, eight pictures. By the way, those are all put out by NASA. So if there was a crater, they would have shown it to us, according to them, because we landed. Right. Now, there's one of the pads. Again, we saw the same picture again. If you look very carefully, there's not one speck of dust here. And there's no speck of dust around it either. And there's that flat landing, same as it is over there. Same slope, same uh, debris, same little. So now, are there any pictures showing that we can stir up dust on the moon? Let's see, maybe we can find out it's possible. This is the lunar rover. This thing landed and they got it off and it's got four wheels and I guess a little engine powered, powered by the, I don't know, maybe a battery. And we're going to see, there it is. There it's being driven. You notice it's actually off the surface of the moon here, kicked up. But there we see the moon dust being kicked up. So it is, here's another picture. Here it's like a rooster tail. So there it is being driven by this astronaut and kicking up dust. So moon dust can be kicked up. There's evidence of it right there. We've got it. It just isn't done with a 10,000-pound thrust engine. You can't, you've got to concur. This is true. It's, if the lunar lander did not land on the moon, there would be no. If it didn't land, where did it land? Oh, well, here's a crane on Earth. And it's picked the thing up. Now, of course, this is on a parking lot. And the article, the comment said they were going to move it someplace, so they had to move it. But they notice it could be picked up by a crane very easily. And of course, it would be very difficult to see these lines, etc., because the camera was over here shooting down. They weren't covering this as, until it landed. So if there was any wires, the only way it's going to kick up dust is if those wires break. My point. In other words, this could be set very gently on the surface with a crane. A leaf blower could not, by itself, prove we didn't go to the moon. A leaf blower. Permission is hereby granted to make copies, presentation, and publish productions. That's my production company. Uh, there's some more slides. Here we go. The end. That's it. Okay. So now, let's see. I stopped this and then ejected. And while I'm doing so, I'm going to talk about Walter, Walter Cronkite. Okay. I found a clip on the uh, on the internet, and Walter Cronkite's talking to the uh, the people in the uh, in the room, and also one astronaut. And I guess he's he's I think sitting beside him. And Walter Cronkite had a a, a you know a drawing of the moon, like about the size of that red dot over there, about as big as this. And the the moon lander was slowly coming down, and the rocket engines firing and firing and firing. And then the next picture was it on the moon. Now, did it fire all the way down? It had to, because if they dropped it when it was here, that thing could have fallen even at one six gravity and done damage and maybe broke or something inside. Sure. So it had yeah. to land on the bottom. And then the final picture, I mean, I'm going to add this to this, this DVD. 
when Cronkite had their picture of the lunar lander, guess what? There was a crater about this big, and the lunar lander was standing right sitting here in the picture. So the lakes yeah. were down, and he had a drawing of a crater, but it was only maybe six or eight inches deep, and this little, uh, the crown of it, like on a volcano, was maybe, oh, maybe six or eight inches high, but it went like this, and then around, of course, and then when the, the lander was there, and around again. So in other words, Cronkite knows there was no lander. Okay, now, I got to get this camera. We're going to now do Darwin proved there's no evolution. It's a fraud. So I have to get the DVD out. Um, by the way, I made a bunch of little slides uh, while I'm putting these things in together in case David starts singing. To, uh, <laughs> it'll be louder than him, and I guarantee you, you don't want to hear him sing. So I'll interject with some uh, dancing music or something. So I'll grab your partner, and uh, it'll probably be a country western because I live in the west out here. So now we're going to watch out. Darwin actually starts. There's a slide saying, well, here it is, the first slide. Darwin admitted that evolution was a fraud. That's Charles Darwin. He lived from 1809 to 1887. So now we can play this. We're going to now narrate this verbally alive right now because he did. He, was, he published his book even though he admitted that evolution was not true. We're going to read the book. Well, there will read parts of it, of course. So... Once again, presentation of Publius Press reminds me of when we get a chance, I'll explain who Publius is. It's very interesting. Permission once again granted to make copies, sell them, give them away, I don't care. This is the Ralph representative a couple of years ago. Uh, you can, well, I'll just, I'm not a scientist. I don't claim to be. I have no degree in any scientific field of study. So I'm not doing this as a scientist. I'm saying, if you want me to believe in evolution, I'm a high school student you better give me evidence. I want me to believe it. You better provide some evidence. There is no evidence of it. None. I've been reading both sides of the evolution thing for at least 45 years. I'm totally convinced it is a fraud in all aspects. Bear with me. This thing lasts about 65 minutes, and you're going to see it. I have no staff assisting me. No researchers doing my own research or any research for me. No one's advising me. No one's funding my work, paying me to say certain things. I do it all on my own. I'm therefore totally responsible for what you will see and hear as I proceed through this material. Okay, this is Ralph Emerson back in 1980. In the, uh, this was in the Tucson Citizen newspaper, evening paper. Frogs don't turn into princes. That's the picture of me when I had hair. This appeared in 1990. This was printed in their uh, editorial section. So they wrote this article. So the rest of it says, as evolutionists claim. So then I think I'll give you a slide showing you what the whole thing was, because this is my article. It read, frogs don't turn into princes as evolutionists claim. Because that was my contention, that it's all, it's bogus. When I was a young boy, this is what I said. My mother would occasionally read me a bedtime story that she called a fairy tale because and one of these was about how a frog turned into a prince. So after she finished with her soothing telling of the story, if I was still awake, Mama would say, that was just a story, Ralphie. Don't believe it because it couldn't happen in real life. Frogs don't turn into princes. 
she did not want me to believe in fairy tales. It wasn't until I went to college that I learned how wrong my mother was. She, she didn't go to college. Fairy tales can come true. Frogs do turn into princes. PhDs all over the world know that. They call the process evolution. Evolution. Darwin's theory. All it takes is time. And we're going to examine that. So there's Darwin's book on the origin of species and uh, published in 1859. So uh, don't read the book. And that's what I've done. I've read the whole thing. So we're going to quote from it as I continue here, show you that Darwin admitted it was a fraud going back. Here's science. Let's define the word science. Uh, knowledge derived from observation, study, and experimentation. Well, I can't, we don't have any observation. We're going to do it from study and experimentation. So I'm now going to make some observations. I'm going to observe from their own literature and also current scientists to show you it's a fraud. Here's a book called Evolution of Living Organisms by Pierre Gray. Here's a picture of him published in 2013. He was a botanist, as I remember. I might say it in the next slide, we'll see. But it's just a book that I read, one of the many. He said, the process of evolution is revealed only through fossil forms. So the only way we'll know for sure is from fossils. A knowledge of paleontology is a prerequisite. Well, I don't have a prerequisite in paleontology, but I read. I shall make my observations from the fossil record, like he said. I'm going to define the evolutionary process from Darwin's own words. Let's read how he defined the process. Quote, as natural selection acts solely by accumulating slight successive favorable variations, evolution can produce no great or sudden modifications. No great. It can act only by short and slow steps. Page 626. You'll see that up here in that corner. So Darwin wrote a letter to Charles Huxley, uh, uh, Thomas Huxley, uh, maybe 10 years after the uh, publication of his book. Dar uh, Huxley was one of his early supporters. He was a fellow, I think, a botanist or paleontologist. And there's a picture of Huxley, 1869. So let's read the letter. Darwin wrote, I entirely agree with you that the difficulties of my notions are terrific. The difficulties are terrific. He admitted they're terrific. There's cause for concern. Darwin had difficulties. Now, I'm going to show you two scientists who saw no difficulties. These are, well, not both these men are dead, but they were current during the 50s, 60s, etc. Carl Sagan, astronomer at Cornell University. He did not have difficulties with Darwin's notions. Let me read from what he, what he wrote. Here's one of these scientists. We Sagan did a documentary from his book called The Dragons of Eden, page six. Evolution is a fact, a fact, a fact, documented by the fossil record. Oh, is it? Let's see if it's true. That's what he said. So Sagan was agreeing with, uh, did not agree with Darwin, who said, I've got difficulties. Sagan had no difficulties. I don't know if you remember, Dave Sagan did a thing about, okay, well, too late. This is another one of these current, well, he's now deceased, Stephen Jay Gould, Harvard, 
paleontologist, appeared on major news networks as an evolutionist. In other words, when the major in CBS wanted to talk to an evolutionist, they generally went to old Dr. Stephen Jay Gould. He was from Harvard. So he means he wrote this book, Hens, Teeth, and Horses Toes, pages 11 to 12, published that year. No scientist or person thinking, thinking, doubts the basic fact that life evolves. Oh, so if you're so he did not have any difficulties with Darwin's notions. Well, we're going to show that he did later on have some difficulties. Sagan and Gould were not therefore scientists or thinking persons because they did not have difficulties. Mm -hmm. So only scientists, are, if you're thinking, you will not get that backwards. I'll just say they were not. We've got to, we're now going to discover the difficulties that Darwin saw with his own theory. Remember the word difficulties. Here's number one of five from his book, reading, quoting, number one, the sudden appearance of abundant life in the Cambrian layer, abundant life, abundant, every, all that. Here's the geologic column, millions of years, you go down to the Cambrian layer. That's the, there's no fossils in the pre-Cambrian, but there are in the pre, that's where the first fossils show up, and then man evolves to becomes, um, this is the most recent layer of the, of the geologic column, and this is the oldest, the Cambrian, or at least the oldest that we acknowledge. That, they don't know much about this layer. This, I think, is the bedrock. So here's the early life and progressing through the bir uh, birds and uh, bats and then the dinosaurs and then up here man in the quaternary two million years ago. And this was 600 million years ago. So let's talk about the pre-Cambrian layer rock because there are problems with the geologic column. Remember, there's, I think, 10 or 12 of these columns, various dates, all the way back to the pre-Cambrian layer. So let's see if there are any problems. 77% of the geologic columns have, the existing geologic columns, have at least seven or more layers missing. That's two, three-fourths. 94% has at least three or more layers missing. 99.6% has at least one layer missing, which means there's no such thing as in, in real life. The entire geologic column exists only in the drawings of the geologists. It doesn't exist. Another difficulty, number one, another difficulty, he pointed it was a difficulty. Another difficulty is this one. This is the Paluxy River in, in uh, around Houston and uh, around Dallas and Fort Worth, 40 some miles away. This is not really a river, but it's a river and then flows. There was a huge flood in 1908, and it gorged out this this level, probably 20 or 30 feet, because it was a huge flood. So in 1908, the people after the flood was over, they walked back out, and here's now the. Uh, What's left? That's the what's left. There was feet feet above it, and they said this was in the Cretaceous layer of rock, which means at least 120 million years old, 130 someplace in that area. This rock here, uh, it was the lowest layer. The flood took all the layers off above this, and when they went down there, they started noticing dinosaur footprints. Wait a minute, dinosaurs walking, living in this uh, soft muddy water, because this was mud, and then as soon as the uh, waters went away, this dried into rocks. Now here's the Paluxy River Chase, and there's some drawings of what they believe were leaving these footprints in the Glen Rose Formation. There it is. There's a dinosaur footprint, 
And what's this? That's a human. Five. One, two, three, four, five toes right there inside with the heel and the arch. So here are the scientists. We saw, wait a look at all these dinosaur footprints. No question, there's trails of This is one guy going that way and one guy going this way. And then they meet and this guy crossed over and then this one went on. Here's something probably went off over here covered now by still more dirt. And there's another guy that was cut. So look at these are all dinosaurs. So now the evolutionists claim that these, these rocks now, when they went, they found these rocks had changed colors. So the issue is the creationists said, we're not going to use this anymore. They abandoned it. But now let's read Dr. John Morris, PhD, Geologic Engineering, University of Oklahoma, PhD, wrote this book, Tracking Those Incredible Dinosaurs and the People Who Knew Them. And there's the small tracks and the big tracks going across on a drawing, of course, Dr. John Morris right there. There he is. He went to the Poxy River with other scientists with PhDs. And let's see what he discovered. Oh, boy, this is interesting. He walked in the water. Now here's Dr. Morse's foot, took a, took a shoe off adjacent to a human footprint. One, two, three, four, five toes. There's a little bit of an arch and there's the heel. He's, he, this guy was, they say, if he was six feet tall, I presume this guy was maybe at least seven feet. And he's, there's no evidence of color change except this over here because this is the basic color. So maybe this change, but not this. And it's quite likely that that uh, he put water in that, and that's the and this as well, and it dried off quicker over here. And this might be a little bit of water, but notice the mud squeezed between the toes. See that? That's mud, which means this is not carved by somebody afterwards because you put the toe that right there showed up there, and there's a gap, gap, gap. Okay, and he also showed this was a broom showing this, showing how big this uh, this seven foot a carbonized stick. This is a stick that was dropped. I guess that's the end of it there and the other end. It's seven feet long. And they put a broom in there to show that it's at least seven feet in this rock, 120 million years old. Okay. This was pulled up, these parts of it, and dated by the UCLA laboratory. This is a, a, a root maybe or a, you know, a stick, 12,000 years old. No, 120 million years. You missed some zeros there. The carbon dated at 12,000. This thing is rock, it's still in the rock. It was covered by layers and layers. The enormous problems these two photographs pose to the evolutionists. The rock says it's only, the stick says it's only 12,000 years old. They said, no, it's 120 million years old. And man only appeared a million years ago. There's 119 million years of gap between this layer of rock and this. And the stick says it's 12,000 years old. How, what is it? What, how old is it? How long ago did man stick walk with his footprints in this rock? Yes, indeed, there are at least two difficulties with Darwin's notions. There's just one of them. I mean, there's lots of footprints. Let's now quote Charles Darwin about the Cambrian layer. Quote, the abrupt manner in which whole groups of species, lots of different animals, suddenly appear in the Cambrian layer has been urged by several paleontologists in 1859. His fellows as a fatal, fatal, what does the word fatal mean? I'll define it. Objection to the belief in the transmutations from species A to species B. The fact that there's all sudden life in the oldest layer of rock is fatal 
if numerous species have really started into life all at once, the fact, the fact, the fact would be fatal to my theory of, uh, what, I'm sorry, I better play that clip because I did, oh, the descent through slow modifications through natural selection, it would be fatal, this would be fatal. Darwin used the word fatal. I mean, what does the word fatal mean? I'll define it for you. This is a, this is a picture of a very poisonous uh, uh, mushroom. So eating a poisonous mushroom would prove to be fatal. It's going to kill you. It's going to kill the theory. The mushrooms would kill the person who ate that mushroom. You know, it's beautiful. Look at this beautiful white and looks like vanilla. Who knows? If there was abundant life in the lowest layer, it would kill his theory. That's what he just said. It would kill it. It would cause, cause it fatally to kill it. Several of the most eminent geologists of his day are convinced that we see in the Cambrian stratum, the oldest layer of rock, according to the geologic column, the several of my eminent geologists, the dawn of life. It all started at once on this planet. Darwin admitted that the sudden appearance in the lowest layer would be the dawn of life. Bingo, there was no fossil, and suddenly there's fossils of a wide spectrum of animals. Abundance of evidence of abundance of life in the Cambrian layer. That would be fatal. It would poison it. It would destroy it. Here. This was in 1995, Time Magazine, drawing all sorts of old animals. Evolution's big bang. Uh, new discoveries show that life as we know it began in an amazing biological... Okay, here it is. New discoveries show that life as we know it began in an amazing biologic frenzy that changed the planet overnight, almost overnight. Now, this is the Cambrian layer of rock, 120 million, 130. Then in the early Cambrian, it says, creatures with teeth and tentacles and claws and jaws with teeth. Early life, amoebas, single-celled animals materialized with the suddenness of apparitions, meaning a ghost in the lowest layer of rock right there, a burst of the creativity like nothing before or since. Nature appears. I'm going to reduce my voice out I lose my voice for this. Nature appears to have scratched out the blueprints for virtually the whole of the animal kingdom. So this one magazine, okay, maybe these people are not real scientists, they're just writers. So let's now look at the real scientific world. Is this true? Was it a big bang in the evolutionary Darwin? So I'm going to identify the dots of real scientists, people who've got degrees, not Ralph Epperson, not even Matt. Here's Stephen Jay Gould again. He said, no scientist or thinking person doubts the basic fact. We're going to talk about it. So Dar he's going to admit that he's no longer a scientist. Where do you hold on to what this man's come up with? He didn't say it in the book. I agree that an outstanding fact of the fossil record is the geologically sudden origin of species. So now he's admitting evolution is not true. So therefore, he's not a scientist or a thinking person. Uh, but wait a minute, I'm going to show you what he's done with this. He supported evolution, now he's finally come to the conclusion that suddenly explosion was fatal to Darwin's theory. Page 259 of Hen's Teeth and Horse's Teeth, written by this man from Harvard. 
PhD. We shall see later how he chose to deal with this fact. He called it a fact. This is a Dr. Dwayne Gish, University of Chicago PhD. 95% of all animals living on the surface of the earth are found in the Cambrian layer. 95%. Forgive me, I'm not going to do that. I'm trying not to do that anymore. Here's another guy, Dr. Robert Carter, PhD in marine biology. Evolution's Achilles heel. Descent with modification should progress from simple to complex. Instead, the greatest evolutionary innovations appear suddenly, suddenly. This is the Dr. William, uh, Dr. Dewar in this book. Uh, he's quoting Dr. Dewar in this book, The Bone Pillars, a great fauna, meaning uh, the animal life, appears on the scene with startling abruptness in the Cambrian layer. He's agreeing with the magazine. He's agreeing with Darwin. We find nothing, nothing, nothing which suggests slow evolution. Nothing, nothing. We're not finished. Here's Dr. Preston Gould. He's a geologist. And this is an article he wrote for this magazine. In the Cambrian layer has found a multitude of highly complex creatures. A multitude. He didn't give a guesstimate. November the 1st, the date, the place. Uh, here's a book and magazine. Uh, yeah, well, it just continues. He placed every animal group in the fossil record of the Cambrian rocks. So he said every animal group. Here's the evolution of the horse. Starts with three or four toes down here and ends with a hoof, single-toed horse. So it went through three, three again, three, and then changed from someplace. There's two two and one or something, and then it changed to a horse with with uh, no toes. And they say that's the progression of said had This animal had this. Nowhere in the world are the fossils of the horse found, series found in successive layers of the geologic column. Nowhere, nowhere in the world. This is false. Nowhere in the world. Let's get some further evidence. This did not occur. I'll show you how and why. So let me show you that. Uh, I guess I've got, I talked about it, I guess, for a few seconds in the narration. I'm doing this in my Yet the scientists have taught that they were separated by millions of years. Wow. In South America, the one-toed horse is even found below the three-toed horses down here. They found a one-toed. So this guy went through the three-one and then back to three, meaning it evolved first, yet the horse theory says it evolved after the one-toed horse. Uh, well, it must have been a mistake when we pulled it out of the ground. One toe, one toe back here in the river, and then it went to a three, two, and then simply there's even there's even more. Let's show you this. Here's the number of toes. Four toes had eight. The, the animal had 18 ribs. When it went to three toes, it had 19 ribs. The horse. When it went to it back to the th or to another three toes, it had 15 ribs. And the modern horse had 18 ribs again. How many ribs did it progress? The earliest horse had four, 18 ribs already, but it, okay, here we go. The earliest horse was found in the same strata alongside two types of modern horses. There's two types down here. The American Museum of Natural History, by the way, this is interesting. Little Ralph, this is my personal story. I'll do it as best I can. If I have to stop it, I'll do so. But I went there once way back during my college years mm -hmm. and went in that door and went through this huge much as much as I could see. This is... They've changed what they had there when I was there, because I saw this 
this evolution. There, I saw this inside in a display in glass because the horse did not evolve. So they had it in the display, a picture of a one-toed Okay, here's it. So in other words, they changed, they deleted it. Here's a picture of a one-toed intermediate in the horse series. This is the, this, I have to admit, this came out recently. So this proves there was a one-toed intermediate horse uh, someplace along in the evolutionary chain. So I guess we're all wrong. Where do you see the picture of the horse? There it is. There's the one hoof. And of course, this horse evolved from four hooves uh, to two and then went back to three, I guess. So here's a picture of a real life three-toed horse. Two. Okay, another quote from Charles Darwin. Let's continue with the proof that Darwin was wrong. He admitted he knew it when he wrote his book. Another quote from Charles Darwin. Quote, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed in, uh, 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 complex, uh, in an, actually an animal species, which could not be formed by in numerous successive or slight modifications, one animal, one animal, my theory would absolutely, absolutely break down. Now, if we can't put it in categories, therefore it didn't happen. Epperson offers the platypus. There's a picture of one. Notice they've got a duck bill and web feed. I'm going to show you why this animal by itself, little platypus, uh, found, I think, only in, in Indonesia, proves Darwin's wrong. First seen in 1797, some scientists killed one and sent it back to the museum. It's got hair like a bear. It's got tail like a beaver. It's got a bill like a duck. And it lays eggs like a turtle, this little platypus. Wow. So it doesn't quite fit the... Okay, it has web feet like an otter. It burrows like a rabbit. It has claws like a lizard. And it feeds milk like a mammal. So it's a mammal. No, it's a lizard. No, it's a rabbit. No, it's an otter. It's a, gender. It's a combination of reptile, bird, fish, and mammal. Animal. Mammals. This little guy is a combination of all those. There's not one shred of evidence, no fossil evidence, that it could have been evolved from anything. The little platypus proves, according to Darwin, one little animal that we can't classify. It would break down my entire theory of evolution. But when the little platypus by itself proves that Darwin's wrong. The leprosy offers that to the scientific world. So this is true. We've examined some. I could give you dozens of these PhDs who said there was a big bang, not in the universe, but in the Cambrian layer of rock down here, 600, at least it expired in 600 million years ago. And at 130, it went into the uh, tertiary period, so the end of the Cretaceous. The thoughts of Charles Darwin again, let's continue. The abrupt manner in which whole groups of species suddenly appear in certain formations has been urged by several paleontologists when he wrote the book in 18, as a fatal, I guess I'm quoting it again, as a fatal objection to the belief in, oh no, I guess, transmutations. If numerous species have really started into life all at once, and it has, the fact, the fact would be fatal to my theory of descent, which I guess I'm quoting it again, descent with slow modification, through natural selection. Fatal, it's dead, because eating mushrooms means you'll be fatally taken from life. It's for that, you eat that, you're going to go have a fatal experience just like Darwin had. No, he didn't. It's still being taught as truth. 
So let's go back to the second, I guess, uh, uh, fatal objection. Let's, I guess, maybe now we're going to examine that with some scientists. No, there are no intermediates. That's, these little things don't exist. There should be fossil evidence of all these little animals showing up, the dinosaurs and Jurassic, and Jurassic, and then the Cretaceous, and then the finding man. Uh, let me define what an intermediate is. Hypothesize that early life would be single-celled, Darwin did this, a summation. Through a slow but steady progression, it would evolve into another species. A leads to B, to C, to D, to E, and then to branches. So here's species A is 100% A and 0% B. It's going to evolve through one, two, three, four steps. Well, there's more, but I'll show you. Let's say that this happened. So with species A, 100%, 0%. Now it's going to be 99, 1, 98, 2, 97, 3, 90, et cetera, down through 5, 5% 5 B, because it's slow, it takes time. So now we're at 50, 50, so now the next step is no longer a species A, it's, it's evolving into a species B with 51%, 52, 53, 54, et cetera. So now it's going to evolve down to the bottom. So it'll be still be part four, three, two, one, and then finally zero, and it'll be 100% species B. This, these are called intermediates. There should be millions of fossils of intermediates for every one of these, showing the intermediate steps of evolution. Where are the intermediates? Because all the way from 99 to 1%, and one to 99, there should be millions, not just one or five or 10, millions of them. Because this is an easy 100 mutations. For every fossil found, there should be an unknown number of intermediates. It could be thousands. It could be hundreds of thousands. It could be millions, 10,000 or a million, or even billions of intermediates between A and B, if Darwin's right. Where are the intermediates. So there are steps between A and B. All those intermediates should have shown up. We're back to the second problem of Darwin. I see what I did was quote Darwin and a couple other. Okay, the lack of intermediates. Let's see what Darwin said about it. Why then is there is not every geologic formation in every stratum, meaning a geologic column, why then is there not there's the geologic column. That's the stratum he's talking about. Full of such intermediates. Why? Wait a minute. Why? Please help me understand. Geology, geology assuredly, assuredly does not reveal any finely graduated organic chain. Why? It should. There should be millions of ge fossils. But it does not reveal any such finely. Perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be argued against my gravest, that's death theory. He offered his explanation as to why it does not reveal any enemies. Listen to this. I think I'll give you an explanation. A quote. The explanation, here it does, lies in the extreme imperfection of the geologic record, of course. That's the answer. We just haven't found these billions of fossils yet. And when we do, it's going to prove my evidence is correct. Someday we'll find the millions, and we can say that it's, it was 
but in 1859, there were no intermediates, according to his fellow geologists. And when I made this in 2019, okay, Origin of Species, page two. The most obvious and gravest object, grave meaning death, objection which can be argued against my theory. So we're going to gravely assault his theory from his own evidence. Here it is, 2018, I made this DVD. We're going to examine current scientists. And by the way, there's only four or five. I could list 60 or 100 of them. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to make it brief. We should believe when these PhDs tell us what Darwin's even telling us. He's warning us that this. Here's an anthropologist, Edmund Leach, 1981 annual meeting of the British Association for Advancement of Science, PhD. He's going to tell them the truth. Listen to what he says. Missing links in the sequence of fossil evidence were a worry to Darwin. Of course they were, and we just saw that. He felt sure they would eventually turn up. Of course they did now, and when he wrote this book, or gave this speech, whatever it was, article, they should be starting, and seem likely to remain so. Well, it seems like we can't find any. Curator of geology, David Rapp, here's the uh, University of Chicago uh, Geology at the, houses the world's largest fossil collection at the Field Museum of Natural. He's a PhD. Who's a, a, a he's wrote David Darwin was embarrassed by the fossil record because it didn't look the way he predicted. I'm sure I keep me bringing that up. I'll stay in the white zone. We are now 120 years after Darwin, and the fossil record is greatly expanded. So we're going to see 120 years later. According to David Rapp, we now have 250,000 fossil species, and the situation hasn't changed. New 250 fossil species, thousands fossil species. As of 1979, there are still no fossil intermediates, according to Dr. Rapp, at the Museum of Natural History in Chicago. Now, here's a scientist who once believed in evolution, who said no scientist doubts that evolution evolved. Let's now see what he's come up with, this PhD. He published this book in 1980 because he's changed his view. We'll see what he's done with it. Who's the world, one of the world's leading scientists, the NBC and CBS, love this man. He's a Harvard professor, PhD, taught thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of students that evolution was true. Let's see what he came up with, a book called Pandas Thumb. I read this as well, page one. The fossil record all offered no, no support for gradual change. No support. The fossil, we do not see evolutionary change, do not see evolutionary change in the fossil record, page 181. No change, no fossil record, no change. The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology Extreme rarity is even better than none. Darwin was so wedded to gradualism that he wagered his entire theory on a denial of this little record. Then he quotes Darwin himself, Harvard, PC. He who rejects these views on the nature of the geologic record will rightly reject my whole theory. They're going to reject his theory because they've already rejected Darwin. So he's going to summarize what Dr. Gould wrote. 
Darwin knew there were no intermediates for his theory, and that those who discover this truth will reject his whole theory. Of course, they still believe they're going to believe in Darwin. He's admitting his theory is not going to be grandly, widely accepted. Of course it's not. If there are no intermediates, the reader could reject his whole theory. And he's aware of that. He's admitting it. So what's his theory? Darwin knew there were no intermediates, but he put, this is me, I think, saying that, but there were no intermediates, but he published his book anyway. And now Gould's going to agree. He figured it out. Extremely important thought that Dr. Gould wrote about. This is the crux of the whole matter. Probably there's others yet because we're not probably about 60% through the entire thing. So we're going to go back to this quote. I think it's of Darwin. I know, I'm, I know the extreme rarity of traditional forms. He said there was a lack of evidence. There's none. In the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. In other words, we have a secret we're not telling you. We back to this quote again, just to show you we're quoting Dar uh, uh, him himself. Or Darwin, I don't forget now. The extreme rarity, this is his thought, of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret we paleontologists are concealing from you a secret. We don't want you to know this. So we're hoping that you can see the enormity. I'm hoping you can see the enormity of what, your, what Dr. Gould just said. The paleontologists are knowingly lying to us. They're keeping a secret from the public. What is that secret? There are no, no, no intermediates, none, zip, zero. And without intermediates, there is no, no, no theory of evolution. This Harvard professor was admitting that the paleontologists are keeping a secret from the public. Why? They keep teaching that a theory is valid even when they know it is not. And I'm going to tell you why at the very end. Just bear with me. Please be on a jury. We're not through yet. It is a trade secret. A fraud of monumental proportions. A disgrace to the world of science. A trade secret kept from the public. So let's return now to Dr. Gould. We're not finished with him. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of the branches. Now hold on, I'll show you what evolutionary tree looks like. The rest is inference, not the evidence of fossils. Now, what does that mean? Here's an evolutionary tree. We started with slime and goop, and then here's the tree going that way, this one, and then they branch off into these animals. We're, we, have, we have our own branch bearing. We're not connected, but this guy's connected to this guy who's connected to this guy starting down here. Perhaps I can find an evolutionary tree that does show intermediate fossils. So I went there, and this is called an evolutionary tree that convinces you that this, these lives all occurred in sequence. And so this is an evolutionary Can you make sense out of that? No? No, you can't, but it's one of 100 evolutionary trees. So a fun exercise is do a Google image search for the evolutionary tree. I counted over 700 different ones. Wow. So there is no evolutionary tree because they can't even come up with any reasonable conclusions. But what I'm pointing out is that there's no intermediate between this guy and this guy. 
there should be intermediates between this one and this one, and there's none, none. And then go here, to none over there, none over there. In spite of there being no intermediates, he said that evolution was a fact. So he's still holding on to this theory that he knows is false. He's admitted there's a secret they're concealing from us. And what is it? Okay, here we go. Dr. Colin Patterson, Colin, senior paleontologist, that's a bone doctor, fossil doctor of natural history. Student asked him why there were no intermediates in his book. Wait a minute, I read your book, Dr. Patterson. You should know. Dr. Patterson wrote back in his second book. He quoted the letter. I fully agree with your comment on the lack, non-zero, of direct illustrations of revolutionary track. Here's one of the world's leading scientists at the, the senior paleontologist. If I knew of any, counting them, one, one more, any one where there should be billions, one, any fossil, I would have certainly included them. He couldn't find any of billions. The world, probably one of the world's leading paleontologists with the nation. There is not one such fossil for which one could make a watertight argument. Dr. Patterson, God bless you. Tornado in a junkyard, James Perla. So he quoted him. How many intermediates are there? According to Dr. Patterson, no. not one, and there should be billions of them. Not one, Dr. Simpson, again, the regular absence of transitional forms is an absolute universal phenomenon, as has been long been noted by paleontologists. He's admitting we know this to be true. He's a paleontologist. Long been noted. We know it's true. Dr. Dr. David Kitts, University Geologist, PhD, evolution required intermediate forms between species, meaning this and that. There should be fossils in between. Where are they? Let's see what he says. And paleontology does not provide them. Does not, not one. Now, let's go ahead to what doctors, Dr. Gould said. No scientist or thinking person doubts the basic file life fact that life evolved. So we're still teaching this. Geology, Darwin said, does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. Well, of course it doesn't. And now doctors are agreeing. But Dr. Gould is going to change his mind. He did it me. There is no evolutionary theory without intermediates. You can't have one because you can't identify a lead. I do not understand how anyone could read Darwin's book without learning. He knew there were no intermediates. It's in his own book. There is no no evolutionary theory without image. You got A, you had to B. Where's the fossil record? Now, Dr. Gould, Gould, where it is pronounced with Dr. Niles Elvish, Columbia, Harvard, got together these two men, and they're going to come up with a new theory of evolution. Wait till you hear this. This is this brilliant theory of these two guys, both Harvard and Columbia, major. He came up with a theory. They came up with punctuated equilibrium. What does that mean? Hold on, America. This is new. This is going to replace Darwin. We argued that two outstanding facts of the fossil record, geologic sudden origin down at the lower, lower level at the bottom in the geologic column, failure to change thereafter, no scientific intermediates, these two facts, 
he called them, reflect the predictions of the new evolutionary theory. So he's going to combine those two. That's the answer. Organisms are in a stable condition until a major change causes evolutionary pressure. So we got A to B and, and, and A minor goes to C and then so uh, these are they're all stable until a major, then suddenly it jumps. Then there is stability once again until a new species suddenly appears. So A leads to B stationary, so it jumps to C. This is called punctuated equilibrium. A stable, but oh, we got a change, another change, another change. Here's the situation. We got species A over here, a beautiful pasture. So it's perfectly content by itself. And suddenly out of nowhere pops up species B, who's going to live in this beautiful pasture. So A didn't lead to B. We don't have any connection between. And then suddenly species C shows up. It's different than A and B. And there's no connection. Then suddenly D shows up. And then E shows up. There's time between these all, of course. So they're all without intermediates. No intermediates, no intermediates, no intermediates, no intermediates, no, 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 without, there's none. So there's no step between C and D, B and D, C, et cetera, none. So it supports the creationist theory of life created all at the same time. At the bottom layer, 95% of all the animals that we have on the earth today are down in the lowest layer. The third problem, okay, let's now discuss this by scientific evidence. We need billions and billions of years for evolution. Billions and billions. Here's the Earth. Of course, I, I took this picture and glued this on. I couldn't get rid of it. I don't know how to do that. The universe is 14 billion years old. All of this year was 14 billion years. So suddenly there was Earth is 5 billion years old. This, of course, this changes. It goes up and down. It goes up from 5. A man came on the earth about a million years ago. Dr. Uh, uh, what's his name? Way back. Morris proved, okay, evolution needs long ages. Long ages between A and B, and then we got B leading to C. Science, the universe is young. This is what science proves. I'm going to prove this. The universe is young, not billions of years old. Here's an article that you said, local, this is our evening paper until it folded, 1982. There it is, the article. The sun was losing energy, data show, energy, or energy, Susie, I'm sorry, sun losing energy, data show. So now we're going to read the underline. And U.S. satellite put into Earth orbit two years ago indicated, hold on, America. So we got science now proving an almost continuous decline, decline in the sun's energy. It's decreasing in energy. Ah, huh? satellites now are proving. And here we're going to read Dr. John Eddy of the High Altitude Laboratory. I'm going to show you him in the book. He's got a book out, and I read it. Here's we're going to now quote. Here's a high altitude observatory in Denver. Here's Dr. John Eddy. He wrote, the sun may have been shrinking as much as shrinking. The sun's growing smaller. One-tenth of one percent, point one percent every 100 years for the last four centuries. That's been measured Sun has dimmed 0.01% since 1980, which is about four decades ago, satellite observatory. No, decades. He's got, this is about 4%, uh, four, four decades. A decade is what, 10 years ago? Well, anyway, yeah, yeah. It goes back. Okay, here's the, here's one of them, the solar maximum mission satellite. There it is. I got it on that. Sun has dimmed by 0.1% since 1980. That's what, 40 
20, 20 years ago, say 20, 40 years ago. This came out in 1986, I guess. So here's a book called The Atlas of the Solar System, written by these two men. I got this out of Amazon. That I, I, I finally bought this book and read it, published in 1983. So let's take, in 1979, evidence was put forward indicating that, 1979, the sun was shrinking, shrinking, getting smaller. From an analysis of solar diameter measurements made at the Royal Observatory, Greenwich, England, this is official. These guys keep track of the sun over a period of 120 years from 1836 to 1954. That's 100, whatever it is, suggested the diameter was decreasing by about 0.1% per century. In other words, the satellites confirming what's been proven for 100 if this figure is correct, it represented a uniform rate of decrease. Mm -hmm. The sun would have been twice its present size about 100,000 years ago. The sun would be twice its size. There's the sun. A 400-year-old eclipse observ observations. He found some Chinese records that are consistent with such shrinkage. Mm. Dr. Eddie did. Let me see if I can explain just how this can cause, can use, how they can use eclipses to measure the sun. They're made, they're made by, these diagrams are exaggerated to show you. Of course, it, this is going to show you quickly a lot of time shrinkage by the moon and eclipses. So there's the moon in, in eclipse. It's going to, it's going between the sun and us. So this blocks out the sun. So this is a lunar eclipse. There it is again. So I'm, it's about in this diagram, this, this big. But I'm going to show you how big it really is in comparison. Let's see if I got that now. Here's, the sun is 900,000 miles away. Now that, someone pointed out this is incorrect and you're right. I've got to correct this. It's, it's millions of miles, but whatever it is, okay, I'm not acting as an alarmist because it's going to take great amounts of time before the sun burns up all its fuel. So I'm not saying it's going to happen like uh, AOC says, here's a, a, a close-up. Here's the sun, here's the uh, Mercury, the Venus and the Earth, and then more planets outside. This is tough. So this is just an approximation. So 100,000 years ago, the sun would be twice its size. So let's show you how, what would happen to the planet uh, 100,000 years ago would be this big and Mercury and Venus would have disappeared. How hot would the Earth be? Very, very, very hot at twice. And Venus and Mercury would have disappeared and engulfed as it, it grew further. Suddenly, they're gone. And that means life could not survive because David... Dr. David has correctly assumed 100 million, million years ago, the sun would be beyond the earth. 100 million years ago, it would bypass it. The sun would, the earth would be disappeared. 100 million, billions of years ago, life, no earth. 100 million years ago, there'd be no earth. Where's the earth? It's gone. It's inside here someplace. 100 million years ago. Our sun cannot be billions of years old. Science 
has proven that for 150 years, measured by the people that measure the sun. The sun, there would be no Earth just 100 million years ago. I'll give me other examples of a young Earth. Let's take some, I've got a listing of 64 of these, all of which the Earth's magnetic field would, is now decaying, according to Dr. Thomas G. Barnes, professor of physics at the University of El Paso, Texas, El Paso. He wrote his book. The magnetic field has been measured for 135 years. The magnetic field measured, it has been decaying with a half life of 1,400 years. 2,800 years, 1,400 years, zero. The magnetic field was twice as strong 1,400 years ago than it is today. Four times as strong 2,800 years ago by measurement. Only 7,000 years ago, it must have been 32 times as strong. 10,000 years ago, it would have made, had a magnetic field as strong as that of a magnetic star of the Earth. This is highly improbable, to say the least. 10,000 years seems to be an outside limit for the age of the Earth. An outside, no, 10 billion years, not 10. Oil seepage is measured. This is measured 5,000 tons of oil seep into the oil. Estimate, I'm sure, from the K rates, this much, that much we measure, that much. This is, there's an amount of estimated oil in the earth of 100 billion tons of offshore oil in the ocean, underneath the ocean. And the oil lost to the oceans 2,500 2, times. So 2,500 years ago, times one year. Well, I'm of course covering in more detail, trying to explain how this is, I'll show you some evidence. It would deplete offshore oil in 20,000 years. So 21,000 years ago, there would have been no oil. So there was this amount, de helium decay. As planted animal life dies and then decays, a certain amount of helium is released into the atmosphere. Helium decay. Once again, hear much, hear much, hear much. Bingo, it's going to go down. Estimating rate of addition to the atmosphere shows the Earth is 10,000 years old. Now understand, this is measured, using that as a measurement, going backwards 10,000 years ago, the age of the Earth would be, helium would measure 10,000 years. Okay, population, I, I didn't cover the adequate, it's better done so in there. I'm doing it from verbally, but inside there it'll give you. Population growth, evolution theorized that man evolved 1 million years ago. Population growth, today is 7 billion people, today. That's a rough estimate, of course. But that's what they figured, estimated. Population growth of one half of 1% in 4,000 years. One half of 1%, starting it down to 4,000 years ago. Population growth, one fourth of the present rate. So it's 2.0%. So only one fourth of the present rate. Oh, I guess I'm sorry. We would reach today's level only 4,000 years ago not 10,000 or a million years ago. Right. The right. present rate of sedimentation, I'm, I'm going to pause this, I, I'm, I'm trying to cover going back. In other words, population has been estimated at this, and if it goes at that rate 
for 10,000 10, years, their population would be over here someplace. So that population growth doesn't account for 10 million years. The present rate of sediment by rivers could fill the oceans 19 times in 3.5 billion years, fill the earth from the above water, just the land above water as it, as it erodes off into the rivers and streams. 19 times in three and a half billion years, and we're supposed to be, what, 110 billion years old? This doesn't prove it either. Once you had a decay rate, we've measured this. We can extrapolate from that. It's going to go up like this. Mm-hmm. 3.5 billion years old. 19 times it would fill the earth. There'd be no water above land. Wow. So once wow. you get, oh, I'm sorry, I paused it. Forgive me. I got to hit that again. There we go. I hope that's, please understand, I'm doing this from memory, so this is all better discussed. And the continents would be eroded to sea level in a mere 10 million years. Huh? (laughs) 10 million years ago. Here's one. What is creation scientist says? 68 decay rates, all of which listed in this one magazine by a PhD, Gary Parker. 68 decay rates listed in this one magazine. I've covered four or five of them. Books by scientists who have documented a young Earth. Others besides the ones I've given you with the uh, decay rates. So let's take a look at some more. Uh, once again, I'm going to talk so David doesn't start singing. Age, I'm going to list them. Age of the Cosmos, 1980. Scientific creation by PhD in 1974. Young Earth, Young Earth. Here's John Morris's book. He has a separate book out called the younger in 2000, you can read these. Found about a hundred measured decay rates each one. The Earth is one. One book by itself lists 64 decay rates, not 10 or 15 or 20. If only one of these 64 is true, only one is true. Of 64 is true, it would prove by itself that the universe is not old. One of 64. If it got down to 15, would that be enough? How about 30? How about six? How about 64? They all prove that evolution is wrong by a measured, measured decay rates. One decay rate would prove by itself evolution couldn't be true. Once again, only one of 64. I've quoted a variety of scientists, some leaders in the field. Mm-hmm. I don't know where this going. They've all proclaimed that Darwin was wrong. Here's once again, there's no intermediates in the geologic column. We've proven that from even Darwin himself. So, but these two guys knew that it was false. Now I'm going to show you what this guy went from evolutionist to creationist, and then he's bound on, now listen to this. Universities continue to teach it. Why? I'll show you that at the very end. We're getting close. We're working on that. So we're going to show you why evolution's taught. Why is it still being taught? This is going to blow you. Okay. Let's join together, all of us, and study what we've discovered so far briefly. I've given you other PhDs that have proven much better than I have. Science has got a true secret. We're going to open the currents. The currents. Open these. Okay, here's the last area that'll prove to you that evolution's a fraud. 
What's the purpose of evolution? Why is it being taught? Why did he publish his book in 1859? Here's the biologist, a defender of evolution. Julian Huxley died in 1975 with a PhD. I think he was a botanist. He was a supporter, just like his grandfather was. Here he is, this is biologist. You get these quotes taken from Goodreads and other sources, but these come from, it was either Goodreads or one like it, or even from books. But we're going to quote this guy to show you what he found about evolution. Dr. Julian Huxley died in 1975, a biologist. He should know, and he did. But you can read this quote as well. And many, all, all of these quotes are many. Evolution is the most powerful idea that has arisen on the earth. It's false, but it's Darwin removed the whole idea of God as the he removed the whole idea of God as the creator from the sphere. Modern science must rule out special creation or divine guidance, one or the other. And it will soon be impossible for an intelligent, educated man or woman to believe in a God. The God hypothesis is no longer of any value. In the evolutionary pattern of thought, there is neither need nor room for the supernatural. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. Many see that fact that America's civilization is slowly deteriorating. A belief in God is being challenged. And I say the reason is in the main the false theory of evolution. Amen. It's still being taught as fact. Julian Huxley was right. The supernatural, a belief in God, is being swept out of the universe. Swept. Goodbye. It is happening right in front of our very eyes here in America. Why Christianity is under attack. God is being swept out of the universe because of evolution. Evolution teaches. I'll say, here's pretty little Susie reading her Bible in school. Isn't she sweet? Look at that little angel. And there's, but the school won't let pretty little Susie read her Bible. Why? Why? Man, I'm just quietly minding my own business at lunchtime. I'm reading the Bible. Yeah, probably this might be every first Corinthians or Epistle of John. And because of evolution, Susan, you can't do this. We two scientists have discovered a real truth. Sorry, Susie. You can't read your Bible. There is a God. Oh boy. I'm going to, I said there is a God. It's going to give me some proof. That's not, oh, I'm so, wait a minute, this is, might be a duplication, because I'm going to show you there is a God. Uh, wait a minute, I'm, I'm sorry, this, uh, I, I don't remember how long, okay, wait, wait, wait let's, okay, I'll do this briefly, and we'll cover it again, probably in better detail. There must be a God, okay, I'm only going to cover this part of it. These two scientists, PhDs, two skeptical scientists who put their heads together and reached an amazing, there must, must, must. This is the London Daily Express, 1991. This guy's a P double PhD. This was the champion of the to these people. There must be a God. There's the article. That I, I, got a, I got this directly. 
Chandra Rick Ramerson, he's a, 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 a math and a physics teacher, and Sir Fred Hoyle, one of the leading, benighted by the Queen, leading Heritage Director Institute of Astronomy at Cambridge, and he taught at Cardiff College of Wales, Professor of Astronomy. These two guys got together independently of each other. Oh, this that's right. This is I'm gonna cover this with that one article only, but in my DVD will use it as well as other evidence. Each independently computed the chances of life necessarily for even the simplest life imaginable to have evolved by chance. Chance is a law. To be one chance in 10 followed by 40,000 zeros. One chance in 10 carried to 40,000. There's six dice. There's uh, 12, 11 different ways those two dice can be rolled. And the chance of drooling that, 50, it's equal, 240 is equal to rolling six dice 50,000 times in a row. 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12 50,000 times. Here's 10 times in a row. What are the chances of that happening? 11 different ways the two dice can land. So it's at least one out of 11. Twelve, 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 twelve. Until you get eleven, then you got to start over again. Twelve, 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 twelve. You get to six, and then you get twelve, twelve, three times, and then twelve. So you have to start over again because you just got you broke the chain fifty thousand times. Fifty thousand times. This is impossible. I guess it could. No, it couldn't even happen in a real world. I'll show you that as well. The laws of chance tell you it can't happen. Dr. Carl Sagan said the multitude of numbers, listen to this, this genius is going to tell us how many grains of sand there are in the earth. He's going to show us. He did this on that TV show. Listen to this. He estimated the number of grains of sand in all of the beaches of the world. Dr. Sagan said 10 to the 30,000th sign. That is pretty unusual. It's 10 followed by 30, not 240. Thousand, the universe originating by chance has one, no chance, no chance. I'll prove that to you now. But even if you got to count it's as high as the number of sands in the grade in the beach, it's 30, 30, and this is 240,000, 240 million, whatever it was, I've forgotten. I'm 100% Santa Rick certain that life could not have started 100%. That's, that's the laws of chance. Cannot have started spontaneously. So this is only part of the God exists. The favorable properties of physics on which life, life depends are deliberate. Wow. Everything that leads to life is deliberate. The universe is too complex to have been assembled by chance. It can't have occurred by chance. The laws of chance tell us that, teach that, but it's being taught. It had to have been the result of a conscious design of a designer. There must be a God. Here it is. Darwin even admitted there must be intermediates, and he could find none. There are none, no intermediates. And there are none even by scientists today. I'll give you several examples. These men said there must be a God using the laws of chance. 
How many times ways can you roll 11? One in 11. That's chance. They proved it. But Dr. Richard Dawkins, a biologist at Oxford, so he's the equivalent of Yale and Princeton and Columbia and Yale Harvard. He's going to show us the truth. This is the genius of today. He's still alive, I believe. It is absolutely safe to say that this gene, if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, this genius, PhD, teaching, even that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane. We who prove that evolutionists are teaching America's children today, that's the conclusion we have got to draw just from 68 minutes of documentation, as brief as I could make it. I could cover this for four days and still not give you all the evidence. Special thanks, Colonel Chris Lewis, your friend. Permission, of course, these will give just the six of these and we'll end. The unseen hand. I have to do this and talk because though David will start singing. The New World Order by Ralph Epperson. There's my book, another book, number three, uh, Study Masonry. Uh, there's Jesse James, U.S. Senator. We'll talk about that. We've already talked about that. Mm -hmm. uh, contact me if you want to talk to me about this one way or the other, evolution. If you don't visit my website, there's so put the dash. Don't forget the dash. Contact me for a catalog. There's my street address. You deposit, write it down, written, produced, and narrated by Ralph Epperson. A presentation of uh, Publius Press established in 1787. And there's the end. So I, I interrupted. David's not going to sing, so I'm going to stop this, take it out. Oh, I said, very, very, very good presentation. You get, that was a very good? Very good. Very that, good. But no, 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 please, please, don't, no. no. Oh, here's, where's my music? Okay, well, we're now going to take number three. As soon as I, in my haste to get that done, That's I'm not okay. going to soft break. Thanks a lot, David. <laughs> I'm picking up the little, fortunately I've got an aluminum container, so only a little bit came out, and I got one napkin to cover it. But anyway, thank you very much, David. I'm going to move it further away. Okay, I'm going to get this out of here. You, you sure are this indeed is... a pleasure to have on this show. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm, just kind of, I'm filling in gaps. I think i got to get rid of it here. Uh, up here. i got to minimize this. There's the X. So now it's gone. That's right. So now I can take the disc out of here and put it over here. And uh, uh, okay. Now the next one is the evidence. Put a handsome the... guy in the middle there. Oh yes. Oh no 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 no. I I have to know what David really looks like. That that picture was taken 37 years ago when he was 29. <laughs> <laughs> I got you, David. <laughs> Whether you like it or not. The way I feel today, you might not be too far off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see now how I do this. I just do it. I just I go ahead uh, someplace. How do I do Oh, here. Uh, I click on. No, what no, is it? Don't click that. <laughs> yeah, well, what do go. I do? You're, you're doing it. Okay, there it is. We're now going to go to the moon. No man. Set, are we ready for this? I thought we did that already. Did we do that at the beginning? Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm sorry, I put the wrong disc in there. That's I okay. Take your time. You're going you're gonna to start singing. Okay, no, no, I promise you I won't <laughs> sing. I wouldn't do that to the listening audience. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry.
they asked me what I did with the money to my boss goes, what did you do with the money? And I said, I don't know. What money are you talking about? He said, the money your parents gave you for singing lessons. Okay, I'm sorry. We, we've done two of these. With no Man on the Moon and Darwin, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. God exists and uh, the dredge. Yes, thank you very much. I, I got so excited because I was fearful you'd start singing. So I wanted to cover this. And I'm going to put, there's the disc sliding in, in place. So we've already done that. Forgive me for my blunder. It probably took us oh, two minutes. Okay. Oh, no, no. This this technology, I've told this you for, this is now week number four doing these shows with you. It's beyond me and beyond comprehension. Well, you're picking okay, it up pretty I, quick. I think if I click on this, it'll, it'll show up. Should there it is. Yeah. There's the dredge. There's the first slide. So now I hit play all videos. That's it. And should start. There it is. Now, once again, this is the dredge. And we're, this is once again a... a Narrated the true story of how one man, with the assistance of two retired military officers, hold on, America, bluffed Richard Nixon into ending the war in Vietnam. One man, two years before it was scheduled to end. This is a story that should be made into a movie. I can't get it done. Permission is granted to make copies and do that with all of my recent DVDs. So here's a picture of the dredge delivered on August the 15th, 2014. So that's what now, five, six years ago, five years ago. And there's that same picture I used because it shows that I have some hair. I have a, uh, well, the, the most important part of the, of the this particular story is part of a four-hour DVD. But I believe this story, I believe it is. True. There's the first evidence of a rolling thunder written by that man right this man with these two generals, general and a colonel. America's future is going to talk about calling it, he called it rolling thunder, but it was a story of the dredge. Mm -hmm. A little booklet. There's a letter that I wrote to Nord Davis in 1987. I thanked him for his pamphlet and I asked him if we could talk. He said yes. I called him on the phone and I, I asked if I could quote it, dictate it, and I did. Here I go. I asked him if I could uh, permit, he would permit me to tape the conversation. He consented. I read the booklet and further got evidence, more evidence, from the tape I took over the phone. And I asked him. So it was one man and two more men ended the war in Vietnam. Please, you've never, I guarantee you, unless you read Nord Davis or watched my DVD already, you don't know about this story. And it should be told in every city and house. In this one man ended the war. You're on a jury. Once again, be open. You're supposed to sit here and listen to me with my microphone. I'm going to read into this microphone what this DVD says. Can you hear a, a, a voice underneath mine? How's it sound? Are you there? I'm here. Yeah. I'm here. I'm, sorry. I'm trying to listen. Um, I hear your voice just fine. Okay. Uh, uh, Skype is giving us a little bit of a, a cutout, but I, with the slides, it's very, very easy to okay. understand. I'm sorry. It's not your fault, Skype. Okay. I, I've been trying to have this made into a movie. And so I, this is the reason I can't get I made a DVD about the war ending in 1975. So I could use this DVD to tell just this story about the dredge. Once again, remember this port of Haiphong in the Gulf of Tonkin. This is North Vietnam. This is uh, South Vietnam, and that's China over there. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we can go. So, yeah. 
the word in there. Those who, now this is George Santayana, those who cannot remember the past are who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Boy, truer words in there. Okay, the war in Vietnam started by us in 1964 and lasted till at least 75. That's 20, what, 11 years? 11 years. Yeah. Here, here we had, uh, America did not remember, and now we got involved with two other wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and maybe someday, who knows, right now we're looking at this dish. Notice how much bigger they are than these two combined. But we're, we got involved in the war in these two nations because we wouldn't listen to me when we got out of the war in Vietnam and what Lord Davis did. We did not learn the truth about the past because if we did, we would never gotten involved with these wars. So we're going to hear all the evidence today about the dredge. And there's the um, your jury. There's the microphone I'll be talking into here. We're going to talk about the war in Vietnam. This was the, this was the uh, first original DVD. But it's going to cover part. In North, here, I'm going to just cover this north and the south. North and the south it came after 1945. So World War II ended here in this area. As I'll show you in 1945. So the North was communist and the South was capitalist, at least anti-communist. So we got North Vietnam and South Vietnam. There's the, I put it out, Gulf of Tonkin, Haiphong, that's the port right there. There's the capital, Hanoi. This is China. That's North Vietnam. That's, I don't know, Laos or something. And all the pink is uh, uh, North Vietnam. So now we're going to talk about the Gulf of Tonkin and the port of Haiphong. Remember that right there. It's on the, on the cusp of the Gulf of Tonkin. Patrol boats got us involved with the Gulf of Tonkin. We were, our boats were here. This is international waters, cruising them down. There's the whole story. America's betrayal. You'll have to watch this to see. It was an act of betrayal and treason, the link between Vietnam and 9-11. Four-hour DVD. So we're covering part of this in this particular DVD. There's a three-minute, 34-second clip on YouTube. By Secretary of Defense Robert Madden, you can Google it and listen to this man tell you the Gulf of Tonkin incident never happened. It never happened. The Gulf of Tonkin admitted that it didn't happen. The thing that got us into the war never happened. Hmm. So we got the South had South had soldiers. We're going to send them supplies. We're training them. We sent our soldiers to supply the South in Vietnam. Uh, and then train them to fight against the North Vietnamese. So the North had Red China and Russia supplying them, and they were supplying the South. And then, well, Red China, there would have been no war without Russia, China, or the U.S. They're supplying the South and North, and we're supplying the South. So now we got that 80% of the supplies coming from Red China, and Red went into this one little point, came around China, and went into that point. 80% of what they needed to fight the war came from the port of Haiphong. Hmm. And the Gulf of Tonkin, where we had the Gulf of Tonkin event that never happened. Our destroyers were attacked in this water. So 80%. Every general knows the way to win a war. 36 ships anchored in Haiphong. These are not the same two, but probably this was years before. Uh, but they, they had 72 ships supplied by Supplying tanks, trucks, artillery, surface air missiles, radar, gasoline, and other petroleum products, 
power much, 85% went into Portify Farm. It was fed by the Red River. It was supposed to be the map. And I thought uh, this uh, capital I've got is over there. But this river is red because this is mud coming down daily. And they built a built a bottom dredge and put it in the in a in a canal leading from the high from the Gulf of Tonkin into this. This is the part of the canal. So without the dredge, the harbor it's the dredge going from here into High Farms Harbor. So with this this canal is dredged out by a dredge. That's why we're talking about this dredge. If it was during the World War, okay, the way to win a war, every general would know, the way to win a war is cut off the supplies. And there's one dredge in a canal six miles long that if it were sunk, would so you're getting 80% from the end of the port of the farm. So what's the answer? You blockade the port. Put a blockade there and sink the dredge. Sunk the dredge. That's the answer. Because if you sink the dredge, what's going to happen? The canal's going to fill up. You betcha. Thank you, doctor. Sealed up the harbor. Once again, you did it again. There's a slide. Just saying exactly what you said. The harbor less than six months later. During World War II, two ships were sunk in the canal and no ship got into Haifam during the entirety of the war. Later on, the ships were pulled out, and once again, the dredge was bought to keep that canal open to get into the port of Haifam. So the U.S. government made no attempt to stop the supplies going into the port of Haifam. No, no attempt. Here's the Pentagon Papers published by the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, Volume 3 is going to answer this question. We're going to read from it. I think I'll give you a little background if you don't know what the Pentagon Papers were. They came out much later. Someone released them and they published them. And you can read them. They're all published on the, uh, on the Internet. I did so by getting, well, actually, I, I did the, I don't know what it's called, but I could read it, this whole thing, and I copy. Before we do that, here's the 2008 article about Anthony Russo, who helped David Ellsberg release them. And Bert Russo died in 2008, but he's the one that released them. He worked for the State Department or something. So he had access to them. He released them in violation of the oath that he took not to do so. Planner started talking about the mining of the blockading of the Port of Hong in 1954. The war didn't start till 64. But in 54, we're already talking about mining the Port of Hong What do we do that for? We're not at war. It was bad, but if we did, it was bound to risk a confrontation with the Soviets. My God, mining of the port at any time is to risk a confrontation with the We'll get the Soviets angry at us. And if they do, we're going to risk a nuclear war. That's the reason we couldn't seek. See, if we got them mad, we might threaten us with a nuclear war. We don't want that. We wouldn't want that to happen, so we, we don't want to blockade the war, because if we did, we get Russia angry at us. Now, this is the U.S. Ticonderoga. It plays a, a minor role in the ship, but I'll tell you what it is, because it's going to help us confirm this. So this is a, a, a naval, I'm sorry, obviously an aircraft carrier. I, I, I met a PhD, a doctor, a medical doctor, observed pilots on board that train, being trained to drop mines in the port of Haifa. When did you do this, doctor? 
between sometimes between 63 and 65, he was a doctor on board that airplane and he's uh, the carrier and he was talking to pilots who were being trained during that period by this man. So Johnson lied because they were actually being trained to drop the mines, but they were never ordered to do so. This guy, the doctor admitted he was on board the ship for three years when the war finally started. And there was no attempt to blockade the port in 65 either. So thank you, doctor, for your testimony. In March of 1968, Science and Mechanics, I couldn't find the exact copy, but I got pretty close to a March copy. This is a, was a nationwide, maybe you still, I don't know. But they concluded the war in Vietnam can be won in six weeks, six weeks. We can win the war in six weeks. No, it's going to take us to 11 years. You do four things to do to win the war. These generals retired. They're going to tell us, listen, number one, declare the war. We, not, we didn't do that. We didn't declare war as a state of whatever it was that we got Congress to approve it. No war. If we had done so, if we, but we did not declare war. So we didn't declare war to, about the port of Hathong and Hanoi. So we, the Constitution requires it, but we came around that. So we had a declaration of war prior to World Wars One and Two, but we didn't do it in Korea. We didn't do it in Hathong in the war in Vietnam either. But in 1964, he issued orders to the destroyers to conduct military operations in Southeast Asia. But he, later on, he did declare war against Southeast, uh, against North, North of Vietnam. Number two, we should destroy all the military targets. That also was not done. The way to, only a small percent of the targets that the generals and admirals fighting war visited and told Pentagon we should attack them. Only a small percent of it, maybe eight or ten percent. I think you can get her figures later. There's a four-hour DVD. I guess I'm going to talk about it here. I urge you to watch this. You're through with this one. Four-hour DVD. Show you it was betrayal and treason. So number three, we're going to what we should warn China and Russia that we're going to do this. We're going to enter the war. We didn't do that either. So we didn't warn them because if we did, we'd get China and Russia angry. And we go to nuclear war over Vietnam. We don't want that to happen. That's the thinking of the Pentagon, at least some of it. So the four, number four was closed, closed the high court, and that was not done either until North Davis. So all of their medical guns kept getting into port, the port of Haiphong for eight years of the war. 80% was sent into Haiphong, which was closed, it should have closed. It was commanded by apparently only retired military officers. Uh, think about this, they know about this work. They're only, they're the only ones who know. Because civilian planners, this is too complex an issue to blockade a port. They don't blockade it. We don't know what that means. What does it mean, blockade? We have to study. So, closing of the port, if we did that, uh, we don't have to do that. If we do that, we don't do the other three. We don't need to warn anybody. The war is over by itself because the goods can't get in. Mm -hmm. If they can't get in, you win a war by winning it. We never won the war by winning because if we had done so, we would have defeated the war. And we didn't. Mm -hmm. The lowest possible cost. And in the war, you sink one dredger, you could, just, you could blockade the port. Either one is good. It was a major deficiency in the way it was planned. They planned the war, going back to 54, not by the military, but by the civilians. The military later on figured it out. 
those are retired military officers, we're sure that even the, the current ones who were fighting the war were trying to get the Pentagon to change. But civilians were the ones that said, we're going to war with the Russians. Their decision was not to sink the dredge, nor neither that nor uh, uh, minded. Because some military officers did figure it out. I'm going to ask the question, why did they not? Here's Admiral U.S. Grant Sharp, the number one admiral in the, in the area of all the ships. We should have closed the port if I found Sharp. This was a great mistake, of course. Uh, and may measurably increase the casualties that our side accepted. In other words, if we closed the port, the war wouldn't have gone on. We killed, we killed Americans, America's fighting forces by not blockading the port. The Admiral admitted it. For eight years, General Earl Wheeler, has with four stars, member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, submitted a bombing policy paper. This is, that's his function, his purpose. Just inserted a Goldwater Reddick. Of course, he was alive in 64, 65. General Wheeler would have favor action to close the port of my bomb. General Wheeler had received word that closing the port was not an action Johnson was going to consider. Wait a minute, Johnson. You close the port, you win the war. Wheeler tried to tell us to do it, please. So the port of I found where 80% of the materials go through that little dot right there, six or eight miles inside the inland, inland for interview. Victory was not an option. That's the conclusion you have to draw. Great years. Victory was not an option. Not want to win the war. We were not in this We got, boy, this is going to be tough to me. Easy to explain, but not willing to accept. General uh, Curtis LeMay, uh, four stars, Air Force General. Also, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the Tampa book written about Eagle, Iron Eagle, he would, the author said, he would have mined the harbor. Here's a general with, with jets, uh, but these three generals tried to warn us that they didn't do it. Why? They're generals, don't forget, they, they all got four stars. That's their job. In the war, no, we weren't going to win it. Why? They had the power, and the admirals and generals speak. Others obey, except, except they obey orders as well. That's the problem. The Constitution, Article 2, Section 2, the President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces. These generals and admirals have a general and admiral above him. He's not a general admiral, he's a president. The president issued orders to admirals and generals. In this case, he issued orders to the Pentagon and the State Department. So these people take orders, people, this person right here. So the president could decide, presidents could decide to seek the dredge and just order the generals, seek the dredge or, or uh, block the uh, port. Do it. Do it tomorrow morning. So Johnson and Nixon both had the power. They're the president. Commander in chief. We did not declare war. So they had the power. I'll document that in a minute. They could make it even worse. So on May the 8th, 1972, this guy right here goes on nationwide television told the American people, listen to this, told us we're going, there's only one way to stop the killing in Vietnam. Is that, and that is to keep the weapons out of North Vietnam. You blockade the port. How did he propose to do that? 
So he announced in 1972, eight years after the war started, I'm going to drop mines into the port, into the port, I'll fly airplanes over. He figured it out. He figured out the way to win the wars, blockade the port. He figured it out eight years later. Why did it take him four years? Nixon, you became off of what you did, could have done it in 1971, 70, oh, I'm sorry, 69, 70, 70, later in 71 or in 71. This is all messed up. He was four years, he was reelected in 70, wherever it was. So don't be too concerned. It could provoke a confrontation. He didn't want to become too concerned because when he did, it would provoke a confrontation. But he didn't seem to be too concerned about that. He's ending the war, and that was forced to get, by blockading the port, that was supposed to get uh, China and Russia angry at us, a confrontation. We don't want that. So Nixon didn't seem to care about that. It took one week, one week, nothing happened. Nothing happened with Russia. They didn't threaten us. The trench didn't threaten us. With, so he issued, the Americans had issued rules of engagement, not close the port. Rules of engagement came from the Pentagon after the State Department. So if Nixon was going to notify the ships in the harbor that they were going to drop the mines in there on a certain date in the future, he had four days. He gave them four days so he would have notified the communist nations fighting the communists with the communists of North Vietnam, communist Russia, communist China, to get their ships out in four days. Because on the fourth day, we're going to drop mines into the port. He physically notified them. There's a picture showing us these, these Russian ships coming into the port of my farm. So these are, this is the only time I ever saw any evidence of it. So he notified the other communist nations, creating the North Vietnamese communists, like killed Americans in the war in the South Vietnamese. So he had to notify other communist nations so they found out we're going into the port daily. So this was a war between communism and capitalism, or just at least anti-communism. So we had to we were going to blockade the port, so we, we found out who was doing this. So these other nations sided with the communists. So they were supporting the communist war against America and the South Vietnamese by siding up. I'll name these communist nations here to show you that they were supporting their fellow communists. The communist nations of England, Japan, Greece, Norway. Italy, West Germany. These are our enemies because they were supplying the enemies, Russia, with the technology, with their ships. So they were doing this voluntarily. They had to be supporting the commerce. That means West Germany and all these others were commerce nations. Here are the listing of the 153 ships of U.S. allies which shipped to Vietnam. There's Japan, Norway, Japan, Greece, they're all covered. And then there's a huge one. There's some of the nations, I guess, these are the names of the ships, I guess, and there's the forts or something. I don't know if the average or try. I don't know. This is the Norwegians that did it. So England, Japan, Greece, Norway, Italy, and Russia were, yes, they're our allies. Why are you supporting the communists? Who needs enemies when you have allies like this? Wait a minute. Hey, guys, you're on our side. Huh? He notified one more nation. This guy had to notify one more. We had, we had uh, two. Plus six, that's eight. They notified a ninth nation with its ships and like Guess who? The Communist Nation of the United States. Nixon, Nixon had notified the United States. 
Anthony said groups are being trained between Russia and the United States that are the most brilliant. He's my time great hero. This guy was a brilliant researcher. He got the documents. He wrote this book, National Suicide. He had this old Published in 1973. Here's what he said about Russia. Which side was Russia on? Trade with the Soviet Union in 1917. That caused the Russian Revolution and started the Communist over. Has built the free world of enemy, and then we, we built an enemy of the first. We built Russia's technology, the technological component of. Russia enables Russia to supply the North Vietnamese invasion of the South. Uh, without it, they're supplying North Vietnam with American technology. We're having, we have a partner. We ship it to Russia. Russia sends it to North Vietnam. And guess what? That's used to kill Americans. In this book, The Best Enemy by Anthony Sutton, published in 86, he paid, quoted page 188. I buy this as well. Read it. Anybody's going to say, listen to this, please. There is no such thing as Soviet technology. No, perhaps all, almost all, perhaps 90 to 95 percent came directly or indirectly from the United States and its allies. You understand? We built Russia. In effect, the United States and the NATO countries have built the Soviet Union. We've been doing it since 1960. It's industrial and military capabilities. Sudden, praise God for you. So he identified the Russian ships sailing in the high fog during the Vietnamese War. He admitted their supplies 80%, probably the majority of them. So he, 100 of Russia's ships, including five Liberty ships. So there were inside these 100, there were five ships we called Liberty ships. He built these in World War II. But we had a program during World War II called Lend Lease during the case at the cost of $10 trillion, billion, billion dollars, it was $10 billion. We were sending war materials to Russia, including the Liberty, the last Liberty ship lent to Russia during World War II. Of course, these were ships in the uh, 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 river, uh, Sacramento River. Your stockpile, I guess we ever eat them like in Korea or something. This was the last of them. So there's one left, I guess, and saved it as a museum piece. This a liberty ship. We built hundreds of these during World War II to transport goods to, uh, okay, 121 ships. He said 121 ships were led, at least, to Russia under land lease. We didn't sell them. We didn't give them away. We lent them or leased them. So they're not gifts. Take them out. We lent them under land lease. They were still... They, they, I'll take the next slide. If they're not gifts, who do they belong to? Ship, these were ships flying the Russian flag. Even in 1964 70, flying the Russian flag, but were ships legally, that legally belonged to the United States, because we still had title. We lent them, and people back when this was going on during World War II, Tried to warn us and come back to haunt us. And four of those ships going into high fog were still owned by us. So American ships were going into high fog, carrying Russian goods to kill Americans. They sent it to Hanoi, and then Hanoi used it to go down and kill Americans in South Vietnam. American, Russia's 
Major Jordan's diaries, rest, hold, endless lease, listing, a book he published called For George's Diaries, and published in 1952 on pages 83 to 108. Where you can read this whole list of all the things we sent. We sent Russia, in World War II, Russia was our ally. It was a communist nation, millions of people. They were our allies. We were supplying Russia to kill the Germans out of that. They used that those goods to destroy capitalism now, and they're using it today even because the, the, the many of the factories and things are we said that they're still being used in Russia today. The communists do what they do, and that is kill Americans. So anything they can do to supply North Vietnam with technology is going to be used to kill Americans. So with the technology supplied to them by the United States, so what we said. So on May the 8th, 1970, he announced plans to end the war, giving the nations four days to, to, um, to blockade the port with mines. Oh, that, uh, no, this might be the date. This, I think, is the date he dropped the mines. It was not Nixon who ended the war. Okay, of course. No, of course it wasn't. It, was, it wasn't Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State. He didn't end the war. It wasn't Robert McNamara, Secretary of State. It wasn't him. Uh, Congress did not end the war. It wasn't him. They could just, it wasn't the media. Not, they did not end the war. The media. We could, these people didn't end the war. They ended the war. And in Vietnam didn't end it. It was this man right here. Lord Davis. Topton, North Carolina. Not even a major city. Topton, North Carolina. This one man. Used to work for IBM. And in 1966, he was critical of the fact that Russia, we were sending Russia the latest technology of America's IBM computers to Russia. And these computers can be used to launch missiles, launch warheads, uh, cap tanks. So I once again, I took a, I called a Nord in 87, uh, and there's the letter that I put there for a reason. So he will help me with some further details. Hey, Rob. So now, Yes. Can I ask you a question? Uh, we're getting a little bit of feedback. It almost sounds like uh, like the presentation. Okay, very good. I'll turn um, that down. Yes. Okay, now let's see if that makes any difference. Is it any better right now? I'll keep talking. Is it any better? Yeah, it is. I'm not, it's not sounding okay. like you're cutting out. Okay, good. I just want to let you know. Okay, good. Now, now, does the normal voice still sound the same? Yeah, you sound perfect now. Okay, so we talked, Nord and I talked for about an hour. Thank you for someone pointing that out. Because I had my speakers on. So we talked for about an hour. Nord and I, there he is, and there's little Ralph Jefferson. We talked for an hour over the phone. After I read his book, right now I'm going to read about how he talked, about what happened in Vietnam, how he saw the war. Here's what he told me. Once again, you're in a jury. you got to listen to Jefferson, and even with the sound underneath it of a voice. If it still shows up, call me. Let me know, and I'll do some more. I believe his story. I think I told you that. I'm going to repeat that because I know I believe the story is 100% accurate. I'm telling, trying to get it made into a movie. So this is uh, we're doing well. We got to hurry. Learned about the dredge in 1971, so he decided to sink it and end the war. One man, I'll sink this crummy dredge. I'll do it myself. Well, how are you going to do it, Nord? Here's what he said. He said, I found out that if I sink the dredge, he could win the war in Vietnam. One man. Could win it in six months, six weeks. You block it. He raised a hundred thousand dollars in pledges 
people had promised to pay, give him $100,000 total as a payment. And he printed up a flyer. There it is. I uh, copied it. Seek the Congress Dredge Committee, so-and-so message. Seek the dredge. If you do so, I will give you $100,000 if you can prove it. $100,000 reward. So he sent these flyers all over. I'll take the next slide. If you seek the dredge, let me know. Prove it. And I will. he said he got 100, hundreds of pilots called him on the base of that flyer, which was sent all over Vietnam. And you can end the war and go home easily, early. He said, listen, do this, do this. You can do this and end the war in six weeks. Six weeks, you can do a general, a general, court colonel. But it was not his Air Force, his Polish us, It's not on the approved target list. I can't do this. I'm sorry. I would, I would, I would, I would. I wish I could, but I can't because it's not on the approved target list. And if I do this, if I do this, listen to this. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, it's not on the it's not on the list because Standard Oil had a refinery in Ifam. Standard Oil sold oil to both the North and the South. Standard Oil refinery in Ifam. It was there. And if we blockade the dredge, we might miss it and stick hit the Standard Oil refinery. You can't do that. No, don't you do that? If you do that, I we could lose the war itself by blowing up the refinery. No, we, we you can't do that. That's on the list, and we might make a mistake. That's what. We can't even fly over the stupid. The, so not only was the dredge there, but the Standard Oil had a refinery there, and they were sending both the, selling both the North and South Vietnam. That's confirmed by Standard Oil, by Nord Davis, and probably hundreds of pilots who, who saw the, the Standard Oil refinery. So it's real. It's probably still there because it would violate the rules of engagement. What on earth are the rules of engagement? The Air Force officer said we can't do it because, well, heck, there's all the they won't get any medals for their little things here if they shake the dredge. Because they'd be subject to a court martial. So my God, I can't do it because if I do, I would lose my military pension. And I've worked 20 years to get to be a colonel. And if I do that, I would have to leave no future because that's my money. And I, yeah, I said, listen, Colonel, if you end the war, you could save human lives. And it could very well be you. Maybe you should go to work when you get back. If you get court-martial, go to work for Kmart. But you save lives, man. You could save one colonel could save, but it was not enough money. Now maybe I could do that for money. So they sold out. It wasn't enough. And this, to me, is absolutely incredible. I think there's a movie made about one guy that decides to blow up the Capitol. I think, and he actually did it. Uh, I don't remember the name. Someone maybe can call what that movie's called. It'd be fun to watch it. Because he was not going to sick. He was going to go to blow up high noise. Out there. So he, he had the right idea. Finally, this guy says, I'll come and I'll sink. I'll swim out and sink the dredge. This was a colonel. I think he was in the Green uh, 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 Berets or something. But he was, he spoke, he was a Green Brain. He spoke Vietnamese. He was trained to speak Vietnamese. So he could swim out to the dredge. I could get into North Vietnam by myself. Swim out to the dredge and place sinker explosives on the bottom and swim away and then push the button and down it goes. So I said, You better find out a little bit more about the dredge. He said, Okay, good. He said, I'll do that. It might be, might be bigger than that. Like maybe one man can't do it. So Granville was sent to, um, to uh, Hong Kong because the dredge was built in Hong Kong. He built three of them, I'll show you in a minute. And there's a picture that he took in, in Hanoi. He went there 
after he, he went there, I guess, to see it, and he came back and found out there was one of three of equal size. So he said, one man can't sink it, one man couldn't do it. So he said, it was found in, I'm sorry, Singapore. But there's one in Singapore, in Hong Kong, and also Haiphong. Uh, uh, so he went to Singapore. He said, hey, hello, I want to buy a dredge, the large one you got. He saw the plans. And when he saw the plans, oh, here it is, I guess, twice, I guess. But he saw the plans. So he now knew well, about how, what it would take to sink it. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm building a, a, a port and a, a marina. So he said it had eight watertight compartments. So one man could swim out, place the eight charges to sink it. It would have to be heavy, I guess, and you could, I don't know, maybe make eight trips. But, and that's when he took this picture. He went to see it either before or after. So I'm, I'm confused. I don't remember now what he said. So he turned. He turned to North Carolina and talked to North Davis, the headquarters of this conspiracy. So he determined it could only be sunk by one bomb. If you're going to sink it by air, you, gotta, you better have. And North told him, no American pilot would do that. So the, it, it almost came to an end. But listen to this. We're not finished. Uh, Colonel Rideout heard about the Douglas B-26, four of them, two of them, in Laos. These airplanes were still being flown in Vietnam, but maybe upgraded versions. But we gave two of these to the nation of Laos to be used in drug eradication. So they were sitting in, not an Air Force base, but an airport. And the colonel learned about it. So he said, I'll go to Laos. And, uh, well, okay, well, I'll take it step by step. So he went to Laos and bid, he got the hit green, you bid on him, I'll pay you $500 a piece, a piece. and they sold them to Nord Davis, who now an Air Force, of two <laughs> B-24s. The plan was to fly them from Laos, where it was here someplace across Laos, across Vietnam, to the Gulf of Tonkin, go north and then fly into uh, Haiphong in North Vietnam, fly out. So there was enough gas to do that with it. The B-26 can be flown low uh, under the radar, and so that you'd probably be able to get in there quickly because there would be no radar picking up and you take your shot at high with. And then if it failed, 45 minutes later, they'd notify the second one to fly in after they hopefully said, well, I guess that they only have one airplane, so you can maybe get the second one in. And then if you didn't, you're stuck. At least you tried. Second play, there it is, 45 minutes later, same group, and they thought maybe then the second one could get into the first one. Because maybe the guys turned in, hopefully. Well, they also planned on doing this between, they were going to do it themselves, if they could, between the 1st of May and the 7th of May. That's a significant date right there. So they had, and, and that, during those six days or seven days, the moon was in a quarter. And they found out the 500 pound, there would be, there'd be some light for you to fly below the ground with your airplane. You don't need airplane lights. And they found out the 500 pound bomb was one of these. So they they found out that they, that they could get, the colonel called Pedro de Valle, general retired Marine Corps, there he is, said, Colonel Whiteout, could you get, Colonel de Valle, general, could you get us two 500 pound bombs? Because you've got friends of yours in Vietnam right now that have got 500 pounds. So tell them you got a got an Air Force led by the nation of Don <laughs> Davis. <laughs> so he said, uh, "Would you help us?" So he called. So he called 
general's friends of his all over Vietnam. He's a four-star general. He told his friends, "Hi, I'm Louis. Yeah, yeah, good. Time. What do you need, Lady Cuba?" And I said, "They found out once they found out how big the bomb was. I guess probably uh, the general found out it was too big for the bomb bays, and so they'd have to attach it some way to release it." That written group. So they said it was too small. Shot this whole story. They couldn't use the two airplanes, so I guess they probably abandoned the house. They were stuck. Okay, no, no, no. This guy said, "Can bluff the government because we would if we sunk it, and you didn't, guys. We're going to tell you what we can do." This is a four-star retired general. We're going to bluff them. Now, if we do sink it, and you didn't. We're going to notify the media that we did, and you refused to do so, and it ended the war. Do you understand? So the colonel flew with a letter from the general to Admiral John McCain. This is the father, or was now John McCain, the, the, his senator, his father, was head of the uh, naval of all the forces in the Hawaii Pacific. So they flew to Hawaii. The colonel walked in probably in his uniform, and Talk, gave the orderly, because he knew that McCain was in the office, said to him, uh, I want to see Colonel uh, uh, McCain, uh, General McCain, Admiral McCain, because he's in charge of the Navy, and I'd like to talk to him. Here's a letter from a general that he knows. So the the, the man took the, uh, the aide, took the letter in to see this man, and said, there's a colonel outside who wants to see you. Well, who is he? What does he want? So all I know is he gave you this letter. Well, gave me to give you this letter. So he read the letter, and he, he knew that he was implying that there was a plot to sink the dredge. If they didn't do it, they were going to notify uh, uh, the, the media with a press conference that they sunk the dredge. Here's pictures to prove it, because one of the, one of their ships had uh, one of their bombs had blown it up, and they're going to quote the the, uh, the Pentagon Papers and blow the water the the the, the uh, government out of the water. You could have won the war years before by sinking the dredge if you did nothing else back when we recommended it or even way back when the war started. So McCain then yeah. learned and told the, 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 the general to take the letter, the aide to take the letter back. So these three met on April 28th, 1972, the plot, how do we do it? What's the next step? So they were now meeting three of them in North Carolina planning on their next, or planning on, this is what their original plan was, but they, they didn't meet directly, I guess. Oh, that's right, the Admiral McCain did not meet Colonel, the Colonel, so that he could deny, did you meet with Colonel Reinhardt when he planned about that? Yeah. So he said, he used an aid in between the two to go back and forth so that he could deny having met the Colonel because if he did, he would be indicted as well, because this guy would be tried for treason, trying to win the war board up, this kind of thing. So this guy said, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, but listen to what he did. He called, here it is, if we sink it, go public, the U.S. government would not, and the three American citizens would blow it themselves up on May the 7th, 1972. So now they knew, this man, let's take the next slide, I think the next one covers it. This man made a phone call. Okay, now they were hoping that 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 the American people, the American people, he couldn't imagine the anger 
that the Iranian people, if they learned that three men operating strictly on their own with no military support had accomplished single-handedly what the administration had failed to do in eight years. This one man with his two retired military officers could do what the government had not done in eight years, 64 to 72. Hmm. He tried. So this man called this man. That's Henry Kissinger State. Said there's something up. What? They're going to sink the dredge. That's, I don't doubt that he might not even know what the dredge was. But he said, this guy, there's a dredge and I found it. They're going to sink. And if we don't, um, so Lord Davis had friends in the Pentagon. This man, okay, I went too fast. There's one step I'm missing. This man called this man back and said, uh, uh, no, uh, this man called the State Department or the Pentagon. He could do so, State, Secretary of State. And I want this man's records. So this man read the records and found out that this man was indeed a colonel, did speak Vietnamese, and he was a man of action. If he said he was going to do it, he did it. This was a very courageous expert in, in warfare. So he knew that if this man said we got eight days with the records, and I maybe even checked on him, they knew that they would. So Kissinger made a phone call too. He said, Okay, here's the worst again. Apparently, Kissinger believed the flag, or at least didn't want to risk it, that they were going to sink it if they didn't in seven or eight days. So Kissinger told Nixon, Nixon, so Nixon, I made eighth, now by the way, the eighth could very well have been Vietnamese time, but the seventh was the day they gave, so the day, at least the day, the plus one. Nixon admitted on the deadline given to him by Colonel Rideout to end the killing in Vietnam. In other words, he said, we don't want to risk it. They could very well sink the bridge. So now, this was a, a good little purpose called the Reaper by a, an Air Force pilot in Colorado Springs. Wrote this in, a, in, in 19th. And on May the 8th, where the date was, the Air Force went to DEFCON 3, which was an increase in force readiness above normal. In other words, they were warned that they might succeed and we better protect ourselves on what's going to happen to us. So they went to DEFCON 3. So the plan didn't work. Well, Nixon decided to mine the platform with mines. Mm -hmm. I remember that day. I didn't hear what you said. No, I said I remember that day when he made that announcement. Okay, hold it, hold it, good, please, do. Mm -hmm. So there's the seventh, could very well be May the 8th over there, I don't know. But even if he did on the 8th, it's only one day difference. Right. So these okay. three men right here, one man with an idea and two men, this patron, topped in North Carolina, this man right here, uh, is. <laughs> we owe him a debt of gratitude. Definitely. This man Definitely. right here. How many lives did this man save? Not only of Americans, Vietnamese, but also... There's all sorts of people over here in Laos and Cambodia and the other nations around here who died, even the red Chinese babies. He saved countless lives, the three of them together. I'll give all three, but it was his idea. Save on January the 23rd, 1970, they finally signed, signed an armistice. And the war, that means they didn't end, they only ended the war, they never ended it. So let's, I wrote this, made this DVD to honor this man because no one else is doing it that I know of. And I do so with this. This man is truly an American patriot and probably one of the greatest this nation's ever had. Thank you, Mr. Davis, for what you did.
Nord Davis. Nord Davis. Indeed. Thank you, Nord Davis. <laughs> hey, uh, Ralph, is he still alive? Uh, I, I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I haven't, I haven't heard from him for years. Written and produced. This bunch of, and these are the slides that ended. They're on the, the official, the original one. I think I can end this and, and close it out and save some time. So let's do that because there's nothing in there to give me any thought. So let's close this out. Let's see if I close this out down there. I can I can minimize it. That'll be the way to do it. Oh, I think I, I got I got to close it out. I got to get it up here. But anyway, uh, wow. I can, yes. Okay, you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay, very good. Because uh, I'm doing this uh, once again with that. Council, I think I know what I'm doing. Oh, this is the last one. God exists. Okay. Mm -hmm. I can only end with this. I would urge you, all of you listening, and all of you who might listen to this, or even the dredge, please go and watch Vietnam, America's betrayal and treason. I want you to know that Nixon and Johnson both had the sole authority to end the trade with Russia or any other country under the Control Act of 1960, I think it was 60, it might have been 1949, 1949. Every president, including Trump, although they'll call him a racist if he does, the, these presidents all had the power solely on their own to stop it. You didn't need Congress. You didn't have to go to Congress. Get a majority, minority. Get the Democrat. House. We're going to do it. Doesn't doesn't need the media, the Supreme Court. One man could stop it, and that's why when Nixon said in '68, "I'm going to stop it. I'll be reelected," he could have stopped it, but he allowed it to go on until '72 when Lord Davis said, "Now please understand. I don't like to say this." Putting a man in a situation where you know you're supplying the enemy who's supplying the enemy to kill you with is called murder. It's called first-degree premeditated murder. It's called treason, too, Ralph. <laughs> it's called what? Treason. Yes, it is. But go back. We, I, I'll be honest with you. Every time I get to this point, it, this infuriates me. They murdered 58,000 of our fighting troops and how many people were injured and how many North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese and the, the, the Pol Pot killing the Cambodians and people fighting in wars in Laos, etc. It was insanity. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. That's the point. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't that's mean okay. to... No, no, that's okay. You got a good right to be angry about it. It, it, it was a great injustice that was done. Let me let me go ahead. No, no, I'm, I was done. Okay, let me let me remind you once again: Vietnam, America's betrayal and treason. It's on the internet. Please, you need to watch that because it's happening even today. We're going to wars. We have no right to go, and then we don't win it. We monkey with it, and people die. Yeah. So okay, I'm going, good, good okay, young Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now I've emptied. I think I've emptied that out. Let's put this in there. And I think it'll replace what's on the screen right now. And I gotta keep talking to keep David's. David's already queuing, queuing the uh, the karaoke so he can sing. I know it's it's happening. You see that? I can hear it in the background. So I'm telling you, I gotta do that. 
if we if we did this and allowed him to do that, I think the wires would melt. <laughs> the internet would crash. <laughs> they crash, you bet. Weeks. <laughs> okay, hopefully it's coming up and it'll replace this. And then if not, I'll just minimize it. Hold on. I, once again, yeah, yeah. I, I'm in a midst here. There we go. Oh, there go. Oh, we're back to that. Ralph, you're I, a genius. You did it again. No. Just no. Have, just have to maximize that. No, no, no. That's, it, it, it brought it back up. Because that's the original. Now I can do it. Now, oh, okay. It, okay, now. I, I, I should have deleted it. Oh, and you then, put that handsome guy in the yeah. middle again. That's good. Oh, that's, I think I'm going to get a get a big X and do that and put it right there. Just X. big circle with a line through it. What is this? What is this? Why are you not wearing sunglasses out in the sunshine like that? And your hat, it's and you're covering your eyes so we can't identify you if we ever want to blame you for something. Yeah, is that, that is that is that a remnant of a beard there? That, yeah, that's Look, I got it. God All exists. Right. Look at that. Okay, now once again, just for those who maybe have tuned in late. This is a DVD already on the internet right now, and I sell it in my catalog. You can buy a copy of what we're going to talk about. It only takes, I think, a little over an hour. Yeah, and we've got, we got, uh, we got 70, 70 minutes, so I think it'll fit in there. So let's go. Let's get started. Play all the videos. Uh, wait a minute, Ralph. We got, uh, we got 45 minutes left on the what we're allowed to do. I thought you said it took uh, 27 minutes. Okay, very good. Thank yeah. you. Uh -huh. I'm sorry. It did. It, forgive me. I'm doing That's that okay. for No, no, no. Even That's that. Right. Even the plastic. See, you were so frightened about. It, you started to sing. I didn't check. It did say 27 minutes. So we got plenty of time. So let's go ahead and start now. Okay. Here's the beginning. Boy, I, can, I cannot hear it. I know that man has asked this question for help. Oh, I'm supposed to be talking. Okay, yeah. hold on. Yeah, you got to turn your speakers down. I, I started out by saying, I looked in the universe and, and asked, is there a God? Please tell me how. How can I know for certain? And God's coming closer to me, closer, closer, closer. And he's going to reveal to me how I can now know, know for certain. God does exist. With scientific proof, I'm going to give you. For the skeptic, if you say there's no God, I'm going, if you're going to be open, once again, publish fresh. I'll, I'll answer why I use the word publish. Deliver in March. Here we go back to 2012. So here we go. Once again, there's that guy, Ralph Epperson, the one that's uh, looking, doing the talking with the microphone because you're on a jury. We, I'm an historian, researcher, lecturer, and author of four books on the conspiratorial view of history. Just for those who don't know me, two of my four books are being now published. I say five, it's all up to seven or eight, and many more, foreign nations, including even Commerce China. Wow. Do you believe that? That's the History Channel that made me a guest twice. I've been twice on the History Channel. Uh, I detailed the name. Here it is, Secrets of the Universe. A dollar bill was number one. It's, and here's the second one was History of the Founding Fathers. Twice I was on History Channel. They showed it over again. I'm a graduate of the University of Arizona. This is the old main, which was the first building built on a campus, um, on, which later became a huge 30-some thousand students. God, here it is. God, this is the book that I published in 1976. When this is finally, I finally put this together. And there it is on my catalog. Uh, it's listed down at the bottom, or it's listed in my catalog. There it is, their website. 
I think I'll give you the address here in a minute. If not, later on. You can go there and you can buy this yourself as a DVD. Or uh, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a priest. But I do believe it. I say I believe in God. But it's actually more I can prove God exists. That's what we're going to do. I can prove God exists. Good. I'm not a pastor or a priest or a theologian. I had a faith in God replaced with a knowledge. There it is. A knowledge of God's existence. Because I have proven, proven, I'll repeat it again, proven that God exists. So I was a questioner. And that's what led me to what we're going to cover here in 27 minutes. So when I went to this garbage factory, I was only a simple believer in God. I was a Catholic and lukewarm, and so I believed in God. I never thought about it. And I was not, not one professor ever challenged me in all the classes I took for four years. Hey, listen, let's talk about whether there's a God or not. They didn't challenge me by giving me both sides as you do in academic freedom. Of course, they didn't talk about it because I'm going to prove this. So this this should convince a skeptic. If you're an open skeptic, I'm telling you, you're going to end when we finish. You will have to conclude. You're going to be forced to conclude that God does exist in the universe. This was a letter written by a little girl named uh, Francis Preachers. No, wrote to this guy, Virginia, somebody. I think I skipped a slide. Yes, Virginia. Francis Preachurch, I wrote a letter to this newspaper. Dear, there she is. Dear editor, I'm eight years old. Some of my little friends say there's no Santa Claus. And my daddy says if if you if it's hot in the sun, uh, you would tell the truth. So Santa really, daddy, is there, is there really a Santa Claus? So Church wrote back, yes, little Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. And of course, here he said there wasn't. But he may prove that there's an essence because he's not telling the truth. So this answer that there is no such fat jewelry fellow like this, no Santa Claus, it's a figment. But there's no North, there's no North Pole where you elf builds barns and builds all the toys for the good little boys and girls. And this is the tree decorated. Uh, there's so the question now is being asked: Is there God? It replaced is there a Santa Claus? And it has reason to. So we're going to now examine. So one does not need a newspaper writer to lie about Santa Claus or to lie about there being no God or being a God. I'm telling you, we're going to prove it. So a writer today would write, yes, Virginia, there is a God. And there's the book. So in this book, we're going to, we're going to talk about three questions, only three. And you're going to answer the question. You can do it as we go through, one after the other. We're going to use science. We're going to use logic. We're going to use reason and the laws of mathematics. That's called science, proven scientists, reason, logic, and full, fully mathematics. We're going to do this together. Question number one, does the universe exist? That's the first question we should start with. Is there a universe? There are only three possible answers. Now, by the way, I'm going to go through this, so I'm going to examine all three. So now the question is, is there a universe? Does it exist? There's only three answers. Number one is, it does exist. Number two, it does not exist. And three, you're not sure. What else, other option is there? Is it real or is it not real? Oh, you're not sure. Okay. So the universe does not, it does exist, does not exist, or you're not sure. What other explanation is there? Well, it will maybe on Thursdays when I look at so let's examine it does not exist at all. The first, of course, it doesn't exist. And we'll also examine later, not sure. So past philosophers had wondered about the external world does not exist. 
that only mind and ideas exist. I think it's called existentialism. Other philosophers have said it's not possible to know if the universe exists. So therefore, you either don't, don't know how to know or you don't know. So it's, those arguments are illogical, unreasonable, and without validity, I'll show you why. The universe does exist. A mind capable of asking the question has to exist before it can ask the question. Yep. If you don't exist, Rene Descartes, philosopher of 15 so-and-so, I think, therefore I am. That makes enormous sense to me. If, I can't, if I'm going to exist, I can't ask the question. So I must exist. Now, the universe had to exist before me because the human mind, okay, I'm sorry, the human mind cannot comprehend a time when I was here, but there was no universe. Mm -hmm. Something causes me the universe causes me to conclude it exists. Because if it didn't exist, I wouldn't be here. I can't live without it. So the universe, okay, let's take the next step. It's my conclusion. It does, oh, this, this, is, this does not exist. Does not, is not, is, I'm sorry, is illogical. So now let's see. The universe exists. Let's examine the three. Okay, so. I'm contending the universe does exist because I, I exist, therefore I think. Or I think, therefore I exist. It has to exist because if it didn't exist, I couldn't ask the question. I can't, because if, if I stood by myself out in a universe, where'd the universe come from? Who made that? Well, I know I couldn't do it. So something's holding me in place. It's called a universe. I'm part of it. I can see it everywhere I look. While I'm looking up, I can see it exist. Mm -hmm. So it has to be real. It has to exist. I'm saying the fact that you claim it doesn't exist is illogical. It doesn't fit. It has to exist. And it does exist. You can see it. I, I am. I think. Therefore, I am. Descartes was right. Okay. I hope that holds true for you as well. Mm -hmm. So now, did it have a beginning? We got a universe. There's only three possible answers once again. Question number two. Did the universe have a beginning? Number one, it did exist. It did have a beginning. Two, it's been ex existence forever. Or three, I'm not it's impossible to know. Those are the only three options. So I'll show them once again. I'll show it, I think, three ways. We'll look at the three possible explanations. It's it is ex in existence. It's it been existed forever. I'm saying I think it has been here forever. I didn't do it through. It could not have existed forever. There I go. That shows. It, I'm sure it could not exist for a year. This is the reason. I'm sorry. I should have probably played it if we had a way to do it. I, I read it. Thermodynamics proves it. This is the science of heat heat transfer. This is science. This is measured. We know this for sure. There are two laws. Notice the word laws. This is applicable anywhere in the universe. Thermodynamics, it's applicable throughout the universe. It's a law, it will happen anywhere. Go to Venus, it'll happen. Go to Mars, it goes to the furthermost star, it happens. It's applicable throughout the universe. Thermodynamics, well, what is, it's a law of energy conservation. That's law number one, energy conservation. Energy is not being created in the universe today. It is only beginning, being changed in form. 
It's not created, it's only changing in form. The law of decay holds, second law, energy as it is being changed in form becomes less available for further use. It dissipates, it's slowly decaying, as we saw in the example of the, of the sun. When we looked at the sun and the, uh, there's the sun once again, it's decaying, it's shrinking inside, it's a, cali a candle. A candle is this tall, it shrinks and shrinks until there's nothing. This thing's gonna run out someday. It's gonna no longer exist as the sun. Mm -hmm. So here's the sun. Now, I don't know what I'm saying here. I can only conclude, we realize it's real and we're concluding there. Now, that's what happens. This is gonna happen when the second law runs its course. It's gonna no longer exist. It's gonna cool and there'll be nothing. It's gonna become a dead star if it, needs, if it even exists at all. It's gonna be gone. There's the sun after it runs out of energy. The second law says it's decaying and it will decay. And it's, this is what we're gonna see in the universe. Nothing, everything's gonna be, there's gonna be a heat equilibrium. When the sun runs out, the universe is also gonna run out because it's not infinitely old as well. These are stars that are going to disappear. These are reflecting elements. They might continue to exist, I don't know, but the stars are all gonna be gone. They would have burned out anyway by now. If it was here when it started, and it, it was down here millions of years ago, it's got a period, it's gonna run out. We know that, we know that we started here and we're gonna exist and we're not, we're gonna die and then it's gonna run out billions of years later. It would have burned out by now. So it cannot, oh, there's Ralph Epperson. Once again, this is one of the pictures I used to put in the unseen hand. I didn't use it because I didn't think it fit, but that's the Bible. Sorry, I was, my basis was the Bible. Thinking in 1985, I finished the unseen hand, I needed this picture. So I could have used that, but I said, okay, here's the universe, it had a beginning. It's got an end. Now, how long this is, I don't know if, I don't know if anyone knows. This might be 75 billion years or 20 trillion years, but it's going to run out. It's going to decay. There's the law of decay. It's, it has a beginning and it has an end. Now, let's consider that to be real. We know the universe is, does exist. There it is. It has a life expansion. There it is. And you can be measuring this. Let's say it's one day long. It starts and then burns out like a candle. It's one inch long. A day later, it's nothing. So it's burning out, and it's burning out, and finally there's no more. So it's not an eternal life. The universe, as we know it, energy-wise, cannot have an eternal life. This has got to end. At least there's all the energy in it. There's the line of eternity. I can't draw it, because there is no beginning, and there's no end. I've already started that with question number one. Eternity exists because... We knew someplace in that eternity we, we started. The universe started. There it is. Now, let's just say that Ralph Epson's over here on the universe right here. But here's the universe existed years and years ago, and it already ran burnt out. So how could, how could I be here if I'm not here? I could be here because I, if I was here, I'd still be existing. So this could not be. I can't, I can't be here because I'm just... So, Ralph, I can't be here either. I can't be here before the universe. And I can't be after the universe. I've got to be here. Someplace, very second, 
there. There's the universe, eternity, eternity. There's the universe. Has a beginning, it has an end. And there's someplace in here, I cannot tell you where I am, but I know that I'm in the universe. I know the universe exists, and I know that I exist. I think, therefore I am. So the universe now, we can say the universe exists, and it had a beginning. So we now answer the second question. The universe had a beginning. We answered the question, the universe does exist. So with you, here it is. The universe does, does not, we are not sure. We can exclude these two. The universe had a beginning, it, it's been here forever, and we're not sure. We know that's not true, because the thermodynamics is going to burn out, and we know, not sure. We, we can't be saying you're not sure, because we know it had a beginning, and we know it can't be here forever. So we're back to square one. If it had a beginning, that doesn't. So the universe does exist, and it had a beginning. We've solved two of the questions, I believe. Mm -hmm. Once again, I'm doing it by boat. This is far better because it's been slowed down. So how did the universe begin? Well, let's try to prove that it did begin. I contend that it did. So it was one created by something larger. Number two was created by chance. It just popped up out of nothing. Or number three, you're not sure. What other options are there? It had a beginning, you know, and, uh, created by chance, had a beginning, or start something, and it was not sure. There was a, the Big Bang, but where did the Big Bang come over here? Well, what caused it to get there? We're still got the flow. So let's now examine, did it happen by chance? I think that's the next thing. I'll have a slide. We're going to examine it by chance. Chance is not really chance. Let's talk about chance. Mathematicians can accurately measure probabilities. You can measure, okay, well, I'll do it step by step. See what we got. I should have looked at this, but I mean, okay, here's one quarter, one quarter. Either you got heads or tails. So now we can measure chance. What are the chances of it landing on heads or what is it landing on tails? 50-50. So let's see what the chances are. Mm -hmm. Heads or tails? Flip it in the sky and it's going to land. So the chances are one or two. Either it'll land heads or land tails. One or the two. So the chance of that happening one is one and two. This is going to happen one time out of two. One and two. So now, let's take four quarters. I think it's four. Heads or tails? One and two. Either that or that. Let's take, uh, forgive me, once again, I'm talking, but I don't know what I'm saying. memory. So there's four ways the quarters can land. Two quarters can land, one quarter, can, two quarters rather, can land how many different ways? Two quarters, flip two, two thumbs, they flip both tails, tail and tail, heads and tail. Tail and heads, or four heads, Intakes. So we can toss it, do it by tossing it, or we can do it by mathematics. Or I just did, I counted. Now there is a chance that the quarter can land on its edge. I should mention that. But that is so improbable, we're not going to consider it. Because you could flip, I bet, 50 million times and it might not happen. It might happen on the 50 millionth and first. Now, how many different ways can 10 cards, 10 only, fall like this, all diamonds? There's 10 consecutively numbered playing cards that can fall in sequence. One through 10 or 10, whatever it is, 
you lay them out one through 10. There's 3,628,000 different ways the 10 cards could fold in line like that. 3 million. One, two, three. The chances that we're following up, two, three, one. Are one. So one chance at 3,628,000, they're going to fall in that, that random number. If it falls number 10, you got to start over again. If it falls four, so and so, it's got to be 10 in sequence. Now let's see how many different ways 100 cards, one after the other, can fall in sequence. It's 10 to 158 different ways that 10 100 different cards can fall out in, in, in sequence. One through 10 in sequence like this. There's one followed by 158,000 zeros. That's quite a number. I think there's like 20 or 30 here. So there's 158,000 numbers. One, two, three, et cetera, through 100. They got to fall in that sequence. And it can be measured. They can measure it scientifically or even probably now by computers. Mm -hmm. There's one chance in now. This is in one. Did I double that? I don't know. Also, uh, forgive me. I don't know what this represents. It looks like it's bigger than the one we just looked at before. Oh, here it is. Oh, no. I guess that was one, one in 158 again. Now, the age of the universe has been estimated. So they're saying it had a beginning, or at least it had a big bang 30 billion years ago. 30 billion years ago. So the age of the universe is 30 billion. Now let's use their figure. 30 billion years of time. One second at a time. One, one, okay, it's 10 followed by 18 seconds in 30 billion years. That's done. There it is right there. 3, 6, 9, 12, 16, uh, eight, whatever it is, 18. So there's only 10 estimated, 10, 80 to the 80th power particles in the entire universe. This is a, I don't know how they measured it, but there's 10 in one in 82, or one in 82, whatever it was. So this is getting bigger. 10, 12, 10 followed by 12. If every particle worked together at one time, how long would it take to reach whatever it is? It's one followed by three, six, nine, 12 different zeros. So it's 10 followed by 100, oh, I'm sorry. This is very confusing because I'm talking and I'm not sure I know what I'm saying. But anyway, these, this is consistent. I'll show you right at the end. So there's this this number of, uh, of uh, uh, particles in the universe. Those are all zeros. So any event with a probability of less than one chance in one ten to 110 zeros, any event with that probability has a zero probability of occurring. Mm -hmm. You've got 10 followed by, there it is. So there's zero probability that this 100 cards could fall out in that sequence. There's no probability of an error happening, period, zip, zero, never. Any event with the probability of less than 10, or one chance at 10 to the 110th, and that had less, cannot have happened. Go ahead, more. Zero probability. Please forgive me. I'm doing this from memory. And those numbers disappeared. Now, DNA. The probability of chance occurring, causing DNA to line up, has been estimated to be 10 followed by 600 zeros. So this is pretty big. The probability is zero that DNA could line up in that sequence. Zero probability. 
only one in 10 to 100, I think it was, could disagree. This is zero, one in 600. Life by chance is comparable to, occurring by chance, is probable to like this, being blown apart, probably 9-11, is a probability of a dictionary resulting from an explosion in a print shop. So this certainly is going to gather together and print up, and here's Sir Fred, we talked about this man, now we're going to cover the laws of chance by Sir Fred Hoyle. He computed the number of chances for life to have evolved by chance. PhD, guided by the Queen, one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power. We just looked at DNA, one to 600th power. Rolling 12, 50,000 times in a row is the chances of that happening by chance. It'll happen once, twice, maybe three times, Number four, so the universe originating by chance has no chance, no chance, no probability chance, nothing. It cannot have happened, even in 30 billion years. And there's the article I showed you back in the uh, in the uh, non-existence book, or wherever it was. I don't remember where it came from. But there, there's no study. What was I don't know. I'm getting tired too, David. I understand. There is, there's one for grammar singing home. We're going to cover this now. It was the Darwin thing, yeah. Yeah. Okay, the star, okay. Shadow mm -hmm. grammar singing, there he is, and there's that same slide I used in the previous one. So we're now going to cover that, that briefly in that little uh, uh, DVD. So, uh, so, so anyway, each independent, they did this, uh, both of them, Determined by the laws. Notice the word laws again. Once again, it's one and two. That's a law. It doesn't occur um, three fourths of the time or six months. So they wrote this article in the newspaper and they repeat or repeat the word must. There must be a God, according to what Trump said. He's going to quote it as well. They both came to this conclusion. Skepticals came together. He's, as I said, 100% certain that life could not have started spontaneously. The favorable properties of physics on which life depends are deliberate. That's what DNA proves by itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It can't have happened by chance. The universe is too complex to have been assembled by chance. That's what I think he said. That. That's what he said. I put it in that slide to show you this universe, the result of a designer. That's the only conclusion I believe you can draw. Now, please, I don't trust me. I kind of messed this thing up. So now let's talk about, this is what I didn't cover. Self-evident truth. What on earth did these people talked about a self-evident truth? What is a self-evident truth? Let's define it. Because these men talked about we, had, we were endowed by our creator with self-evident truths. What does that mean? They helped define it in the Declaration of Independence. See, isn't it, the reason they said it is it's not debatable. You can't debate a self-evident truth. The fact that you've got life is a self-evident truth. It is true simply because it is true. It's not debatable. You either exist or you don't. And if you exist, you can't debate that you don't exist. The universe was created by a master designer is a self-evident truth. What we've just concluded so far, there is a creator that is a self-evident truth. The God that exists is self-evident. He exists because he exists. 
Now, why he does or how he does is beyond comprehension. Now, for the skeptic, let's go through this. We're going to examine for the skeptic. Let's see whether or not we can miss him. Does the universe exist? Question number one. I'm going to review it, I guess. Yes, the universe exists. It has to exist. Man, okay, it does exist. Did it have a beginning? Yes or no? And the third option is it, it had a beginning. We proved that with the laws of thermodynamics. It had to have a beginning because it's burning up. Number three, how did the universe begin? It was created by something larger than man. Man can't create it. Something had to, and that something it was larger than man. It was it had the ability to create something out of nothing and to create a universe and time as well. In the beginning, we've concluded a creator created the universe. In the scientifically, largely, rationally, we concluded in the beginning a creator created the universe. Step one, two, and three, right there. In the beginning, a creator created the universe. Now we go to the Bible. Genesis 1, 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the earth. That's going to ring. Well, there it is. Get hung up. In the beginning, that's what we just proved. In the beginning, God created, I'm sorry, yeah, go here. In the beginning, the creator created the universe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Those are self-evident truths. Amen. You argue all you want, but then you're not capable of thought, of realizing that you exist, and you have to exist on a universe. You cannot exist without it. So eliminate the universe, all the stars that we can see, the earth that we can see, eliminate it. And where are you going to be? It has to exist. And without it, you couldn't exist. And that beginning had, that that new existence had to be. So we've got to conclude, I believe, even this is cursed. There is a God and there is no other option. So we can answer Virginia's question. Dear editor, is there a God? We can answer that question. Yes, dear Virginia, there is. Hey, God, the editor. <laughs> very good. Yeah. Very simple logic to explain a very there commonly asked question. Well, since this is the last one, let me go through this. You can stop this time anywhere along because this, this, this appears at least three times. There's my website. Don't forget the little dash, ralphepperson.com. Permission, once again, is granted to make copies. Give them out. Show it to your neighbors. Show it to your pastor. Written, produced, and narrated by Ralph Epperson. Published. Oh, remind me to talk about this, David. Make a note. What does publish mean? The end. So that's the end of it. We should. There we go. It starts again as I'll stop it. Okay. So let's now ponder the universe, David. Are you still there? I'm still here. I'm still well, here. I'm wide awake. And I'm convinced that there is a God. I, I okay, always have been, but, you know. I'm even more okay, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. Go back. How did you know there was a God? We all believe by faith. Mm -hmm. The Bible even says that. By faith, you shall believe in Jesus. Right. Well, I've proven that Jesus exists by this trout of turn and the scenario. That's mm -hmm. the subject we should cover. Right. The, the shroud of turn proves 
Jesus existed. He lived. He died. And he was resurrected. The Shroud of Turin and the Sudarium, two separate cloths, separated by time and distance, even today. They prove Jesus existed. Mm-hmm. Period. So belief in Jesus is no longer a belief. We've got physical evidence of that fact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's no uh, longer, we believe that, no, I believe. Now, please, you can challenge any step of the way they step, but I think I examined all possibilities all the way through, one, two, and three, and we examined the the only three possibilities in each one of those questions. If you're not sure, then I can't convince you of anything. But if you're open, if you answered the questions, you, from what you know, you've got to conclude there was a beginning and there was a God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, then w- once you accept those facts, then God is free to create in you more knowledge of his existence. Oh, uh, thank you. Let me give you, if I may, just as a passing thought. This is Ralph Epperson's little theology. It can be said in a couple of minutes. And I, please understand, I'm not a great Bible student, but I know a couple of things that are really important. And I'll try to ma- point that out. Little Rafi, let's see. Um, wait, 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 where is it going with that? What did I mean to talk about? We were talking Rafi. about proving the existence of God. Yeah, but that's not the point I was going to. Oh, here, here's my theology. I believe there was a God in a universe, but there was no there was nothing in the universe itself. Mm-hmm. There was, he was in a blank, but he could see because he was a God. Mm-hmm. He looked around him and he saw there was nothing around him. Nothing. Mm-hmm. So he said, I'm, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create a universe. And I'm, first of all, no, 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 before you go to there. He said, I'm going to create angels because I'm lonely. I'm by myself up here. But I'm going to see if I can create angels. And he created angels. They were the created beings. Beings, plural. We don't know how many. But we know that someplace along the line, later, who knows when, the devil, who was a created angel, decided to take over. Mm -hmm. I'm going to replace the God. And he started a war. And the Bible goes on to point out in Genesis that he was defeated by Michael. But he took, when he was defeated by Michael, apparently took him on by himself. When he defeated the devil, the devil took one third of the angels with him. Right. So in heaven, Michael and two-thirds of the angels are there. Mm-hmm. So when he got to earth, God said, I'm, I, I, can, I'm, I had to create an earth, and I'm going to put beings on it. But before I do, I'm going to send the devil down there. So then the devil, the God created Adam and Eve out of nothing. Mm-hmm. He then created Adam first, and then created Eve out of a rib, out of a side. Mm-hmm. So Adam was created out of the nothing, the universe, and Eve was created from Adam. Right. But then the devil showed up. And the devil said, listen, if you, okay, don't believe God. God is lying to you because you can eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because God said, don't eat because I'm going to teach you what's morality. You can eat from the tree and you can know what's right and wrong and you can become as God's. So he, the devil was sharing the throne. Mm-hmm. And what happened? God learned and banished Eve and Adam. And then they created mankind. Mm-hmm. Because out of nothing, 
he created man, and man was told to populate the earth, and he and Eve started uh, families and therefore. Now, we were created different than the angels. I believe that when God created the angels, he created them to worship him, to deal with him, to, to live with him. But they all did so because they were created to do so. But man was given free choice. Right. And then here's the only question we're being asked when we're on this earth. One single question. It's the most important one we're all facing. Once you can start to think. And that question is, Jesus walked up to Peter and said, Peter, whom do you personally say that I am? And Jesus answered him like all of us have got to answer him. You are the Christ, the living son of God, mm -hmm. the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, you said it correctly, and therefore you are given eternal life. But you, when you get there, you will have freely chosen to worship me. That's right. Not you were created to worship me. It was your choice. And he's going to rejoice because we're going to rejoice. He gave us eternal life. So the last question is, how are you answering the only question you have to answer with free choice? How do you say that I, meaning Jesus, am? End of theology. That's it. Simply said. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. But notice, you said that voluntarily. You said it, you, right? You're, maybe you said because you figured it out like I did. But when I when I put that together, there was no question in my mind. I'm going to worship Jesus, and I'm going to worship Jesus in heaven. I'm going to see Jesus. I'm going to talk to him and be there with him and tell him and thank him for God. I want to live for eternity. There's no end to that. Whether the, universe, the Bible says the universe is never replaced anyway. It knows it's going to die. Just like we said, that's the only option the universe has. It's going to die. It's a candle. And when right. it can't. That's right. Now, let me ask you this. A corollary to the candle. Let's say we walk into a room. And the only light is from a candle, and we measure it, and it's four inches long, a tall. So we got a candle, say, on a plate. We're not going to burn the house down. It's going to, you know, the melt, melted wax is going to gather in a plate. So it doesn't burn anything except the candle. So then we measure it. We're going to find out how, how long is this thing going to last? And let's just say, for the sake of simple argument, in one hour, it's lost one inch of the four. How much longer is it going to last? Theoretically, three more hours. Three more hours, right? Unless it's something happens, right? Right. Let's how how long was it before it started? What? How, how long was it before? How big was it before it started? It had to be lit. How big was it when it was lit? Well, if it's a quarter gone and there's three quarters left, there was four inches. No, it was lit. Oh, if God lit it then, yes. But if he didn't light it then, how big was it? We can't tell. Right. If the universe is 37 billion, billion years old, the candles are going to burn for three more hours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the evidences that the universe is a candle. It's going to burn out. Right. And we cannot predict. You can make estimates, but no one knows for sure except God. Because God's got the, the power to rejuvenate it as it stands right now. Right. He can put things back 4,000 years ago mm -hmm. when it was created. Mm -hmm. By the way, I can prove. Well, we did a little bit when we studied the uh, uh, the age of the universe. I've got 68, 68 measured uh, decay rates that prove that the uh, the universe is uh, 
4,000 years old. Let me end with all this, with one last thought. We're talking about the, uh, oh God, I can't, what did I put it? Here it is. There was a comment made about the INF Treaty. I'll show you, it's a fraud. INF Treaty was a fraud, signed by Reagan and Gorbachev according to the treaty to eliminate, eliminate, eliminate the intermediate range missiles. That means the missiles and warheads. We got them, they're all over the world. They can cause a nuclear war, blow us all up today. So let's read the treaty. Oh, Ralph, don't read the treaty. Yes, I read the treaty. I'm gonna open it up to pages uh, 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 172. We're gonna read page 172 of the treaty because we're going to eliminate it. Here's what it says, listen to this. A missile subject to the treaty, meaning it's gonna be destroyed, shall be subject to inspection only by external and visual observation. Huh? Can, can we kick it? No. No. Can we touch it? Nope. No. Can we drop a magnet on it? No. Nope. Can we look inside? No. Can we uh, 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 drop water on it to see if it's metal or will it rust or will it uh, 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 drop a hammer on it? No. External. Okay. If the Russians have fake missiles, how do we know they're, they're real? How do we know they're fake? If we can't inspect them, we got to believe them. Right. That's right. what that says. Mm -hmm. That does not eliminate missiles. No, not at all. Does it? External, nope. visual, observation only. That's right. We can't even touch it. We can't even drop a magnet on it. Look at, okay, that's enough. Now let's read the other page. We're talking about the warhead. Hey, that's on page 36. Oh, by the way, I don't, you can't see this, but I'm reading it right now. I got that thing in my hands. Mm -hmm. Page 36. Before a missile arrives at the elimination facility, its nuclear warhead and guidance elements may be removed. Why? Nuclear warheads and guidance, nuclear warheads are, okay, I'll read the whole sentence. Nuclear warhead devices and guidance elements are not required to be eliminated because destroying them would be meaningless unless the manufacture of such items was also prohibited. And since warheads of new, new such items are also prohibited, I'm sorry. And since warheads are small, verifying compliance with such a prohibition would be extremely difficult. So it's too hard for us to destroy a warhead. So what they can do is take it off of the fake Missile A and put it on real, if they have real ones, put it on Missile B. Right. I mean, I'm worried, on Missile B. Mm -hmm. We can't even check, we can't even count them. We can't even see the missile. Right. It's removed before the missile is destroyed. And uh -huh. then we can't verify if the missile... This was signed by Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. That means there was no treaty. Mm -hmm. Not one warhead legitimately was eliminated. Right. And we don't even know if they eliminated fake missiles because they've admitted that 20% of their missiles that they've counted are fake do you understand? And then, yeah. oh, when 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 someone put a, a this was done by Trump because he favors Putin. That's the reason we got out of the treaty. Right. Does it? He's no, he's a, a realist and realized there was no treaty. Right. End of report. Right. We got to end it anyway, Ralph, because we're at two minutes, hours and fifty eight minutes, and uh, we got three hours on the show. So we. Uh, David, I can't thank you enough, especially for not singing. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> Let's do this again next week. And by the way, we'll we'll work out some details. You and I 
what we want to cover next week, and then we do, we'll do it for three hours. Yeah, yeah, we could talk tomorrow. God bless you, David. Thank you and all your listeners and uh, uh, those viewers who saw what we did. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you next week. Definitely, Ralph. Thank you very much, and uh, well, you have a blessed week, okay? Or I'll talk to you tomorrow anyway.